0: I'm listening to Midas Touch" Minority 54 live.
1: A amazing SEC powerhouse and, and run it into the ground. The well, okay, we're gonna take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're gonna go back to Capitol Hill where there's just continues to be, you know, a, a fisticuffs. I guess is the only way to put it. Uh, maybe an exaggeration, but we'll talk about it when we come back. <laughs>
2: Get soup, human, or whatever it is.
1: Uh, I don't. I don't. What are we supposed to make of this? Uh, or do we even do we want to make
2: anything of it? So, rather than get into like. Uh, crazy person said, crazy person said, uh, what I would focus on <laughs> is what it is they're interested in because what this uh, fight or disagreement or whatever it is, what is was over, which is that uh, this other guy, whatever his name is, had a resolution censoring Representative Rashida Tleep, uh which I think is how you pronounce her name, I'm not sure, um, for some comments she made about uh, the conflict in Israel and in Gaza. Um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene had a much more, like, um, uh, i don't know far reaching um censure uh of her and her resolution, and hers was like so strong that it got voted down um, by the majority, including a lot of republicans and then they put this guy's forward and it and it got it won it, it it was voted uh they passed the resolution and that's what they were that's what they were fighting about right and which you know okay like you can have that view like you can you can feel strongly and probably a lot of people listening to this feel strongly that that censor should or should not have happened it's not what we're here to discuss the point is they have the majority and this is the kind of thing about which they have so much passion This sort of like not even not even the argument over whether or not she should be censured but really the argument over who should get credit for her being censured that's what the people who are the most high profile uh, in in Congress in the majority party are spending the greatest amount of their energy on
1: well, uh, let's let's move to one one last scandal on the Hill. Uh, Santos is officially out. Uh, there will be a special election in February to fill that seat. That actually could be a pickup, like that is a seat that Democrats could win. And uh, John Federman took the opportunity. Apparently, people are going to cameo now um, and hiring George Santos to send messages to their friends. Uh, this is what Federman sent to uh, or had made for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez.
3: Hey, Bobby, uh, look, I don't think I need
4: to tell you, but these people that want to make you get in trouble and want to kick you out and make you run away, you make them put up or shut up. You stand your ground, (laughs) sir, and don't get bogged down by all the haters out there. Stay strong. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Uh, Pretty clever.
2: Um... I think. Uh, apparently Santos is making quite a lot of money doing this. Uh, yeah, I have before, a lot of friends who have been into it. Yeah. Really? Before yeah. we get into the – because I want to hear, as a New York person, I want to hear your thoughts on this on this race. Before we get into that, the one point I wanted to make that I think is kind of interesting that people can bring up when they compare the politicians in both parties is uh, a guy like John Fetterman. So, yeah, it's like clever and funny what Fetterman did, but the other thing at the heart of it is this is Fetterman – Uh, trying to pressure one of his Democratic colleagues in the Senate. And this ain't like the House, you know? I mean, there's less than 50 (laughs) people uh, in in the caucus, right? Or there's 50 people in the the caucus. Um, And so as a result, like, it's kind of a big deal. I've talked on the show before about how, How what close quarters these senators spend time uh, in together. And that Fetterman is out there like campaigning to make Bob Menendez leave. Um, And also like Fetterman, who's one of the more higher profile members of our party now, is also a guy who uh, has done things like he was a Sanders guy, he was a Bernie guy, but he's also become, no matter what your opinion on it, very uh, pro-Israel. Like in the clip where he talks about doing this, there's a giant Israeli flag behind him. So my point simply is, is that when you're talking to people that you want to persuade? I think it's interesting that that from a dogmatic or like perspective, uh, the higher profile members in our party seem to get a little more rein to take positions that you know cut against the course of, of the caucus, uh, and uh, and I think that that's interesting. It should be should be celebrated and pointed out.
1: Yeah, I'm just with him. I don't know why Menendez is still in the Senate. Um, I think he's a national security risk based on the allegations that are out there. And this is, as we've talked about, this is the second time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, I I can't remember exactly. I think it was a hung jury the first time I think we we discussed it. And he celebrated that, like, you know, he's like the Central Park Five or something. Like, (laughs) so it's like, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not here for Bob Menendez. And there are plenty of great people come up behind him in new jersey so you should get out of the way okay with that moment of zen um what's our grab grab an oar for that well actually we'll talk about the, the one for us really quickly we're gonna do a special episode on friday with our best ofs for the year like things that we love this year both in and outside of politics and then looking ahead for predictions for next year um so we'll reserve our sort of personal talk for that um yeah grab an oar what do you got
2: well, I wanted to uh, respond to a listener who is, I think, sort of urging us to continue to to stay in touch and stay the course with the founding mission, as it were, of the show. Uh, and so um, we heard from this listener. It is uh, Joe. And Joe said, uh, hi, Jason, first off. He said some nice things. He said, I, I just want to say that I appreciate the Majority 54 podcast. Um, he said, since the beginning of the Trump nightmare, it's been hard to find solutions and how to combat it. Your podcast is one of the few that addresses that. Maybe it's just me, but I've noticed that there's been less time dedicated to addressing what we should say. Your example, and meaning what the listeners should say to people in their lives who they're trying to persuade. Um, and uh, he said, your example of the youth baseball parent that may vote for Trump was a good opportunity to instruct on how we may frame a dialogue. Mm-hmm. You're really good about saying focus on this don't focus on specifics or whatever it may be uh and then he suggests some sort of role-playing or you know uh going back to the idea of like uh you talking about you Robbie talking about your experiences with with your dad uh he says he lives in Wisconsin and so this kind of thing is really really needed um and so I just wanted to take this moment to sort of recommit ourselves hopefully people could hear it through this episode that I was doing that to making sure that this show is, is a service and that we are helping people, particularly as we approach the holidays and folks are going to have these conversations, making sure that they are equipped to have these conversations and sort of be that leading edge of uh, making the case. So, Love it. Uh, and then one other little grab or thing is, um, I was going to, this was Diana's idea, encourage people, because, you know, we always in the show talking about the importance of using your platform. I'd like to encourage listeners and viewers to nominate to us uh, people that, who they know of. Maybe they have news articles they could link to, whatever it is. Um, or just anecdotes they want to share, uh, people who are using their platform well. It doesn't have to be people who are known, who are really well-known. It could just be somebody in your community who is using whatever platform they have, even if they're having to create one, in order to advance a cause that that, uh, you feel is really important that we should maybe highlight. Um, And to send us an email about it, you can just go to jasonkander.com, and you can click on Contact, and uh, it goes straight to an email address for me. And uh, that's what we should maybe highlight. Maybe they have news articles they could link to, whatever it is, um, or just anecdotes they want to share, uh, people who are using their platform. Well, it doesn't have to be people who are known, who are really well known. It could just be somebody in your community who is using whatever platform they have, even if they're having to create one in order to advance a cause that, mm. that uh, you feel is really important that we should maybe highlight. Um, and to send us an email about it, you can just go to jasoncander.com and you can click on contact and, uh, it goes straight to an email address for me, and uh, that's what Joe did. And uh, we'll maybe read some of those on air, and you can nominate people for us to for us to highlight. Um, and then before we get for one for us, my last thing is we're coming up on the holidays, and I'm going to uh, shamelessly plug my book, which is now in paperback. It's Invisible Storm: A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. If you're one of the tens of thousands of new listeners uh, or viewers who we've acquired over the last few months. Um, that's my book, and it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's pretty good, and it's be a pretty good gift, so please go <laughs> ahead and get it now. Thanks, man. Okay,
0: one for us. So what's going on with you? Oh, I thought we were going to skip
1: it to do Friday, but okay. Um, I, yeah, I was telling you this offline. I mean, this is like – I was telling you offline I'm, I'm barreling down 11 days to this powerlifting competition, and I've dropped five pounds in essentially a week while also getting stronger – uh which has been a fun exercise of just eating lots of protein and essentially nothing else and uh starving myself so yes you should be very concerned don't you don't have to send me at messages it will be over very soon um but i, I just like uh i like seeing what can happen you know testing testing things out and i'm Do in it. a cranky low calorie mode right now so I'm glad i'm not seeing too many people
2: i know it's going to make for some great instagram content first yes, of all uh you you're going to as by the very nature of what you're having to do, you're going to be particularly shredded, even more so than usual. So that's the reason people go to Robbie's Instagram. And also, you know, I am uh, forever an endorser of people never never stopping competing at things as if they're professionals at it, no matter your age. So I think it's awesome. Um, my quick one for us is, uh, Robbie, as you, as you know, um, one of my heroes since childhood is George Brett, the Hall of Fame the, the only Hall of Famer from the Kansas City Royals who is now seventy years old, uh, and who I have, you know, I've met presidents, I've met uh, rock stars and movie stars, and I don't really get starstruck. But even at forty-two years old, uh, I I get nervous when I'm around George Brett, um, and and uh, and the fact that the fact that George Brett. Sees me at a reception on Monday night and goes, "Jason, how you doing?" is is unreal to me. You and I've discussed this. He he is the subject of one of the great internet videos that we won't have to talk. We won't talk about it today, but it, it's one of the great videos of all time. Well, yeah. and if people want to see it, they can tune in on Thursday night. So tomorrow night, if you're listening to this live, uh, and you know. So Thursday night, tomorrow night, the seventh, to on MLB Network. Uh, there's a documentary called Brett, uh, which is debuting, and I know this because I was uh, at the premiere. I, I had the privilege, thanks to my friend Oh, they Kid show Wong, the clip. It's in, in the the, it's in. the documentary. The documentary is fantastic, and it and it. Uh, so George Brett, sort of, for friends and family, hosted a like a, a debut of it at Union Station's movie theater here in Kansas City on Monday night, and dude, like it's it's amazing but also just for me personally to show up and have like george brett and some of his you know royal teammates from the 85 team all be like jason is uh, explaining that to the child in me or to the 42 year old version of me who plays men's league baseball wears george brett's number and wears my socks really high because that's what george brett did because i've done that my whole life my kid wears his socks high for that reason you know jackson has done trump with powerful new
0: motion
5: senior citizens who have not yet registered for their three thousand one hundred and ninety seven dollars food allowance welcome to a special edition of legal af the ladies version Uh it's karen friedman magnifolo here with donia perry my colleague and friend and we're going to talk about a new filing that jack smith filed just today in the uh washington dc election jan 6 case the one the that's supposed to go March 4th in front of Judge Tanya Chutkin, uh, who seems to be keeping that date fairly, fairly certain. And I think if it's up to her, the trial will go that day. There's, there's one potential wrinkle in that, which is this whole pesky question of presidential immunity. And if the Supreme Court decides to hear that, prior to the case going and potentially pause it, I think then that would be really the only thing that would potentially not have this go in March. But so Jack Smith is doing what he's supposed to be doing and he's uh, following the law and what the law requires. And today he filed what's called a rule, federal rule of evidence 404B notice and this is very common and standard in every criminal case. There's a state version of this and a federal version of this federal criminal cases call it a 404 B motion in New York state court. We call it a Molino motion. That's Molino, the French spelling M O L I N E A U X. If anyone wants to look it up themselves and mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's essentially in a nutshell it's you have to tell the court and tell the defendant so he has an opportunity to uh, to fight it or to, atta- or to to try to keep it up, any evidence of prior bad acts or uncharged crimes that the prosecution intends to elicit during their case in chief in their direct case, right? So, Danya, since you were a federal prosecutor for many years, you worked at the Southern District of New York, uh, which is one of the premier... uh, Federal prosecutor offices in the country always has been. The premier, let's say it. <laughs> the sovereign district of New York, as we like to call ourselves. Exactly. And I, I never was a federal prosecutor, just a state prosecutor. So, why don't you explain to everybody what's a 404B motion? What is this, just generally? As you said, Karen,
6: it's very standard fare cases are made and won on 404B evidence, also known as prior bad acts evidence, as, as you point out. Mm-hmm. it's it, it really is. It's evidence that goes to show either motive or a common plan or intent or knowledge Something other than what's known as criminal propensity. So a prosecutor cannot use another piece of evidence that's extrinsic or outside of the charged conduct if it just goes to show that the defendant is a bad person. So, and there can be a thin line, and and I'm sure we'll unpack it as we go along. So the the government wouldn't even try, let's say in this case, to put in evidence that Trump you know, committed. You know, he's not going to put in the Eugene Carroll uh, evidence, right? That that he was convicted of a sexual assault, because that would be that would allow the jury or encourage the jury to say, you know what? I don't know about the the proof or the evidence that's in front of me. I'm going to discount the witnesses. All I know is that this is a bad person who has committed other crimes, and it, it, it creates a permission structure in a way for this jury to to discount the evidence and to convict uh, the person in front of them on, on something other than, than what they're supposed to be looking at. So the prosecution is, is burdened with proving to the judge, uh, usually pretrial, what that Purposes. So one of the exceptions to the to the kind of the propensity rule, and, and those exceptions can sometimes swallow this rule. For example, if you're using evidence to show a defendant's intent or knowledge, that really you know can encompass a wide variety of conduct. So probably the best way for us to unpack this. Is, is to go through some of the categories and you and I can, can sit here and game out and, and act like you know, judges and um, you know weigh in on, on, on how strong we think. Some of these arguments are. I, s- I think
5: so that's fun. You if you yeah, yeah. No, that'll walk, be fun. The... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll play. We'll play judge. Just to kind of um, underscore what you said, because I think you explained it beautifully. In the state, in state court, the way it would play out a lot was, like, say you had a burglar. You know, somebody who who commits burglary. Those typically happen to be recidivists, right? Those are people who do it over and over and over and over and over again. And you sometimes have evidence of prior burglary convictions right that that were from the past and so of course this is the guy right he he absolutely did it, and you cannot offer it to show that. You can't show, oh, no, he's a burglar. Like, he's the kind of guy who would do this, and therefore you mu- you know it's him. You could, however, if, for example, he d- had the same, we would call it the same modus operandi or the same, you know, M.O. To sh- or a common scheme or plan. Like, if he always did it a certain way or if he always used a certain tool or if he always, you know, stole women's underwear like that you know little things like that that were very kind of quirky and uniquely to show that it's that same person that's one way of doing it right so there, that that's just a, a real world example of how normally it can't come in but that's how it does come in so let's go through this motion as you said uh so jack smith it's a nine page motion it's not that long and basically what he said was although we believe that all of the evidence that we're talking about and that we would like to introduce is intrinsic to the crime meaning it's part of the crime it's essential to the crime uh, some of it occurred before the charged conduct of the conspiracy and some occurred after and so it's not technically in the conspiracy and just to remind everyone the jack smith kept this indictment really really tight it's one defendant four charges, and the period of the conspiracy is also quite short. The period of the conspiracy was November 14th of 2020 to January 20th, 2021, for two of the charges, and then a shorter, even shorter, it was November 14th, 2020, to January 7th, 2021, for two of the charges. So what he's basically saying is, we want to talk about stuff that happened before November of 2021 after january or 2020 after january of 2021 and some of the stuff in between that might not be mentioned in the indictment to show the things that you were talking about and you know we could go on and on about well why did he charge such a short conspiracy, because if it was longer, all of this stuff would come in, right? Anything within the period of the conspiracy pretty much comes in. And why did he do it that way? And, you know, so we we can sort of talk about that. But the other and of course, things that happen after it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to predict how he would have done that since it's happened since he's, you know, some of it continues. Right. Uh, The other thing I just want to point out that that I'd love for you to comment on was uh, was co-conspirator statements and co-conspirator by charging someone as an unindicted co-conspirator. Cause if you recall, there's, I think six of them in the indictment, he's the only Trump's only, the only named indictment. There's six unindicted co-conspirators. Why, what, what does that do from an evidentiary perspective? What does that allow Jack Smith to do from an, if, if, if someone's a co-conspirator, like a co-conspirator statement and that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it
6: allows the prosecution to to offer statements of co- conspirators, co-conspirators, even unindicted ones, into evidence. So, it, it it if there is a statement made by an alleged co-conspirator in furtherance of that scheme, that likely will come in. Here, I believe the there's another said, right? co-conspirator, right, who popped up in this motion today. Yep. Uh, this this election worker. Who out of Detroit, right? Who was inciting riot? Essentially, I don't believe we've seen that person. And there's some redacted language there,
0: which I Boris,
6: certainly seems like that points to Epstein. the connection between that unindicted co-conspirator and and Trump. Meaning some 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 through line, some thread that connects that what that person did, which was tried to incite riot in in a Detroit uh, election center to, to, to Trump's knowledge. So that's a, that's an interesting little tidbit that at least I hadn't been aware of before. I don't think was publicly, yeah. noted, but that's very powerful evidence. Yeah.
5: And the government can amend mm-hmm. those statements in that might be a cooperator that they've developed since. Right. Right. Um, and, and of course this is entirely in the judge's discretion, right. About whether or not to allow this evidence and what they're going what the judge will do is they will weigh the probative value and the prejudicial impact and look just because something's prejudicial doesn't mean it doesn't come in all evidence tending to prove guilt is prejudicial right so it's it's they out they they sort of balance it and uh we'll make a decision so okay let's get to the meat of the of the 404 b motion so point number one just to pick up one one point
6: you just made Mm -hmm. entirely discretionary with the judge and as you pointed out earlier courts can go different ways but this ruling unlike uh, the ruling that Judge Chutkin just made on immunity which will be uh, likely should be appealed and could go up to the Supreme Court and maybe back down this these kinds of evidentiary rulings are not allowed to be immediately appealed in the way they are in New York state, for example. So this, this ruling will hold
5: through trial. And that's, that's an important point here. Yeah, that's a great point. You can only appeal after a conviction. You can't appeal during the pendency. That's a great point. And these cases, as I said in the beginning, can make a breaker case. It really the the
6: jury you know, listens very intently when they hear evidence of other crimes or other bad acts. It, it it tends to, even though it doesn't show "quote unquote" criminal propensity, it does you know make them think. Oh, okay, this is not this is not you know not behavior. Yeah. Correct. So, so just to start with that, I think the first couple categories that the government points to are kind of no-brainers. It's pre-indictment election denial and it, it, uh, Mr. Trump's refusal to agree to a peaceful transition of power, and that goes back all the way to November of twenty twelve, I believe. So, as you pointed out, there's a tight. Uh, uh, Time frame for the conspiracy, but 404b evidence can stretch way back in time. And here it does. And, and the government doesn't cite to any law, which is interesting. Their briefs are usually chock full of precedent. Right, it was so short. But this is, I think, yeah, it was short and, and right to the point. And this one, I think, really didn't need much support. It's, it's pretty obvious that this kind of denialism, going back again to 2012, where Mr. Trump is 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 prejudging essentially, the results of an election, or the afterwards, if he doesn't like the results of an election, he'll go ahead and claim that there was fraud. So the government points out this goes to a common theme, a common plan, or a pattern, and I, I don't think the judge is going to pause very long on, on these arguments. We'll see what Mr. Trump's lawyers come up with, of course, and she'll consider
5: that, but um, I, I don't think there's much room here for, for a counter-argument. Yeah, in addition, I think it also shows that his intention, right, his intent. In other words, he always intended to get obstruct. his yeah, to obstruct this and, and to steal the election no matter what, because he's done it as far back as 2012, with an election that had nothing to do with, Him, right? That was, I think, Mitt Romney and Obama, Mm -hmm. so where he was making the claim. So then it gets to evidence of the defendant and co-conspirators' knowledge of the unfavorable election results and motive and intent to subvert them. And that's where the indictment lists multiple examples, where it talks about after the indictment lists multiple examples of defendants' effort during these conspiracies to pressure the state's elect, you know, electors. He called them invalid electors, not fake electors or alternate electors. Um, they, he said the government plans to introduce evidence, uh, basically, that the defendant... Um, th- this is where, I think this is what you were talking about in Detroit, this other person that came, that, that suddenly appears, um, evidence of the defendant and, and a campaign worker in Detroit, you know, that there's a series of text messages exchanged uh, with this individual uh, encouraging rioting and other methods of obstruction. I, I found that kind of shocking, right, if, if that exists. Yeah. And then
6: there, I mean, there must be text messages and or, as you point out, a cooperating witness that will substantiate this. And again, the redacted text must talk about how what evidence the prosecution has that Mr. Trump knew about, uh, you know, this attempt to incite. So that will be very interesting once that gets unredacted and, you know, or the judge rules and or, we, you know, we see the evidence at, at trial.
5: I mean, it's redacted before. for us, the public, but not her. Mr. Trump, right? Yeah, correct. correct. So, and, yeah, go on. Right. And and judge uh, the judge will obviously
6: rule on it. We'll see if you know she doesn't have to explain in her ruling, you know exactly what that thread is. Um, she can just, she could just rule on it. And so we'll uh, you know we'll see. She, she, she has to be pretty quick with these things. And again, some of these seem relatively easy. <laughs> that
5: one's easy. Okay. I think that one's easy too. Right? It shows you know, they knew they lost, and it also shows intent, you know, motive to obstruct and overturn the results, right? Yeah. So the next is one is on both those exceptions, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Then pre- and post-conspiracy evidence that the defendant and his co-conspirators suppressed proof that their fraud claims were false and retaliated against officials who undermined their criminal plans. This one upset me so much when I was reading it. I just I know. couldn't believe what, just a reminder of, of the viciousness that he and his people, you know, went after individuals. This was defendant and co-conspirator number one, who I think is Juliana. Right. Yes, um, I think CNN has has verified that. But yes, we would know yeah. that. I think. Yeah, and basically um, how how they were retaliating against you know individuals to stifle you know aggressively stifle dissent you know and um, and publicly attack people you know and that that was. This one and the next one was also um, to attack Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, and you know that one was the and, and Mike Pence, you know, and it was interesting because they also talk about how even after the Jan. Six Select Committee hearings and the videos of of Miss Freeman and Miss Moss, you know, these public servant election workers talked about how. Trump after Trump would say things about them and call them out as you know all the vicious vile racist horrible things he said about them they talked about the harassment the death threats and the you know all all of that what happened to them as a result and Jack Smith in his motion points out that that's when um, Trump doubled down was a word he used in his motion and continued to do this despite that and and you know I thought that was really pa- that 's really powerful. Um, Evidence that yes. shows he knew what he was doing, and he not only that he intended for the result, he intended, you know, to do what he like he said to Caitlin Collins on CNN in that weird town hall. You know, he said, "My supporter, my my followers listen to me like no one else." He knows that, and and I think this is just evidence of that. So I think that comes in. What about you? This one, I'm, I think, is a little iffier. only.
6: Um, the reason that you mentioned earlier, that the judge is is required to balance probative value against prejud- prejudicial impact. and exactly like that you said, it's so upsetting. The, the the stories you remember from the January sixth commission hearings, with the testimony from those two Georgia election workers, was was riveting and gut wrenching, and so the judge is going to look at. I mean, there's, there's going to be plenty of evidence uh, that, of incitement and of, of, of threats that were made that are in the indictment, right? The whole pressure campaign against Pence and various state officials, all of that. This, of course, tends to support that, but it also, because of that impact, I think the judge is really going to have to weigh that and decide, you know, and, and she might err on the side of, of caution here, given a tremendous volume of, of evidence here, at least in my in my judgment, and as laid out in the indictment. So, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I think she would have solid grounds to rule in the prosecution's favor here. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out, just to call back to your earlier comments about how narrowly crafted the indictment is, I think these 404B requests are also quite narrowly drawn, and I think it's for... The same reason or one of the same reasons, I think, as you said, we could discuss it at great length, why the indictment is drafted the way it is. I think one of the reasons is just to keep things really tight. If the government really wanted to put in a mountain of four b evidence of, of quote-unquote, prior bad acts, th- there's a lot more they could do. We talk about acts of retaliation. You know, there there have been, um, you know, years and years of that Uh you know, my client, Michael Cohen is, has been on the receiving end of that. We just briefed that in the, in the D. Uh, Day's office prosecution in Manhattan. So, so, so I, I think they are trying to keep it really tight here. And I think that the judge, you know, she, she is, is very, very thoughtful and considered and measured. And so this
5: is one where I thought, it could go either way unlike some of the other ones we've talked about interestingly as you know trump is fighting to keep any mention of the jan 6 attacks out of the indictment right because he says i wasn't responsible for it and so jack smith is saying no not only were you responsible for it you actually this is what you wanted you wanted violence and so the next category he is another example of what he said you know is, is is clearly wanting violence. So that where on September 29, 2020, during the presidential debate when he was asked to denounce the Proud Boys, that famous stand back and stand by and the Proud Boys, you know, got t-shirts and it was their rallying cry and they knew what it meant. And, um, and you know, the, this was part of the plan, right, was 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 to do this. And, and also the fact that when he could have called them off during the uh, Jan 6 um during during the riot um he could have called them off and didn't and i think that also goes to intent that he or goes to his intent that he intended the violence yeah so i i vote that it's going to come in you say you're not sure it'll be interesting to see you know well i think I, i would say
6: on that category the showing of support for the rioters, I do think that will come in. So I, I, I draw a little bit of a distinction here. I, I, I think the government made a strong case that this shows intent and that he meant to send these people over, you know, to, to upset or to obstruct the, the, the congressional certification. So uh, on that line, I, I think, I mean, and, and that's powerful evidence too, right? He's, he, he, brings them out or brings them up at his campaign rallies. And he, you know, very publicly apart from that comment that you mentioned, which, you know, has, has is now, you know, been um, merchandised. <laughs> um, it is, you know, it, it, he's, he's admitted a number of comments. So if she lets that category in. Um, there's going to be a lot of evidence that in fact, he supported these people. And this is
5: exactly what he meant for them to do. Yeah, he even calls out how he, how he supports the um, like Enrique Tario from the Proud Boys, who is convicted of the most serious crime, seditious conspiracy and calls him, you know, I don't know. Remember what he called him, but like a patriot, patriot. and yeah, you know, he's been treated horribly, and how he, you know, plays the Jan Six Choir's national anthem at his rallies, and yeah, he you mean the hostages? Exactly. Yeah, the political hostages. He calls them political hostages, meaning the people who are in jail or prison. That's providing um,
0: comfort. So
5: yeah, no, it's it's pretty it's pretty intense. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that. I mean, personally, I think it all comes in, but what do I know? You know, I've never, I, I don't I don't. I, I never practice as a prosecutor in federal court, but to me, this all seems like it would come in. And as you said, it seems so limited. I mean, this could have been a hundred page motion of prior bad acts, right? And right. and that doesn't even begin to talk about if Donald Trump testifies at a criminal is I was about trial. to say, Go the ahead.
6: impeachment evidence they're going to want to get in. I mean, and, and that's going to be a fascinating call, right? Whether he chooses to testify or not. So that's I think a it's whole other impossible. just possible. Just then E. Jean Carroll and all that stuff does come in, right? So That's, I think yeah. if, just to mention one of, as you
5: say, I mean, it, it could be a 100-page eliminate motion. So, yeah, so just to tell everyone who um, might not practice criminal law, um, <laughs> okay. these are two separate motions. There's one of prior bad acts that you want to introduce in your case in chief, right? And that's what this is. That's what you want to introduce regardless of whether or not the defendant testifies. And then there's another, another, we call it in the state Sandoval evidence. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a federal rule for it probably because there's a federal rule I think for it's six oh eight. I don't <laughs> no one ever <laughs> testifies. Defendants never yeah, testify. Yeah, well, in the state, people testify a lot. Anyway, so um, so what you do is you make a Sandoval motion, which is judge if the defendant's going to testify. These are all the prior bad acts that I'd like to cross-examine him with. And of course, any time a defendant or any witness testifies, credibility is uh, always an issue. And so so any prior bad acts that tend to show go to his credibility and show he's a liar would come in. And boy is that list just miles and miles and miles long. So that's very, it's it's just very interesting. So we haven't even gotten to that yet. So anyway, any final words, Donia, before we sign off? No, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the response because as, as
6: you and I have been saying for the past, you know, half an hour, um, this one seems hard for them to, you know, it seems not that defensible, but They've been putting up a lot of fights Like they've made a lot of motions uh, and they're they're keeping busy. And, you know, some of them, when you wade through a lot of the political rhetoric, some of them have had, I, in my view, again, putting on my fake judge hat is, uh, you know, that might have some some merit. But this one is, as I think, going to be a, not a very close call.
5: Yep. Well, thank you so much, Danya. Always a pleasure to have you join our little legal AF family, and uh, and hopefully you'll come back again soon. Of course, thanks.
3: Hey, Midas, mighty, love this. Re-
0: Let's see here. Ladies, ladies, legal AF. Michigan should file charges against Boris and Donald for inciting a riot. Chicago, too. Probably many cities. Many cities. Trump is definitely screwed AF. Thanks, brilliant women. This retired attorney enjoys this type of analysis along with feeling relieved joy at Trump being held to account. Trump should be in prison pending trial like a normal person. The other comments. Here by Midas Mighty, my two favorite intelligent women in one place at one time. Thanks for the education clarification. You guys make me want to go to law school. You guys lovely ladies. Fair of the sex. It's not anti fits MAGA, I know I was there. Kevin McCarthy, January 6th, 2021. Kevin will testify against Trump in March. He had to leave Congress. Hmm. He had to leave Congress. Hmm. Great. That'd be nice. These two women deserve a show of their own. Consider it. Federal charges need to lock Trump up. I will not be satisfied with less. Thanks so much for these amazing smart women to help us all understand the cases better. Jack Smith. More ladies. Love the ladies version of Legal AF. Thank you Karen. Jack Smith has got everything. Donald Trump. Go Ben Go. Love the ladies version of Legal AF. Get him, Jack. The American people are exhausted by all this going on for years and need justice now. Always educational and informative when the two ladies get together. I am Oh, they must bring the Ruby Freeman information in. I'm not a liar, but... Or in the lot all. but I do work at the polls here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm a military veteran. Might be used to the experience of... Being under threat but other poll workers aren't and what happened to those two women have had a huge impression on poll workers all the way here to liberal san francisco people are afraid that trump zealots and proud boys will show up or they'll get ahead of hold of their personal information and target them somehow here in san francisco isn't realistic in my opinion but it has had an effect on the very basic functioning of our system to so the degree that he was and is willing to go to win from rioting at the capitol and killing people to targeting everyday citizens just doing what they've been doing for years in their local communities it must come in to dem- demonstrate the scope and depth of trump's and his toadies or co-conspirators will go it will only get worse with time <clears throat> I've noticed on a number of occasions Trump talking about problems with the ballots. On at least one of those, I'm pretty sure he said without the ballots, we wouldn't easily. The mainstream media always makes the assumption that Trump is only talking about mail-in ballots or early voting or ballots that are counted at any time other than the the night of the election. But he doesn't actually say that. He just says ballots. There's no reason to think that. He doesn't mean all ballots. In other words, to eliminate voting altogether. I think the media, assuming he only means mail-in ballots, is doing Trump an immense favor. The assumption that he meant exactly what he said is more logical. Great discussion and legal insight on this case. Thank you, Vote Blue. Legal AF LE. Legal AF Ladies Edition. You ladies are rocking it this morning. Thank you. When he's behind bars, that will indicate justice has taken place. Excuse him for being impatient Impatient, being skeptical this will ever happen. (sighs) Yeah. Got a lot of fed up patriots in the comment section. Okay, let's see here. Kevin McCarthy's days are over shocking resignation.
5: Anyone in the United States is qualified for the senior spending allowance. The state is giving everyone this bonus. Remember, I will never give up.
3: I care too much about this country. 28 past the hour, breaking news out of Capitol Hill just in the last few minutes. Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who previously served as House Speaker, has just penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that he is leaving the House of Representatives at the end of this year. Kevin McCarthy is giving up. The former spineless Speaker of the House, MAGA Republican, Kevin McCarthy, announced in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that he will great be he testifies against Congress at the end of this year. Here's the article by Kevin McCarthy. I'm leaving the House, but Two not the fight. My work is only getting started in my next chapter. And in the op-ed, he writes, In this spirit, I have decided to depart the House at the end of this year to serve America in new ways. I know my work is only getting started. Well, the work that you did was highly damaging and highly <laughs> embarrassing to yourself.
5: Here's
0: the article
3: <laughs> on MidasTouch.com. Former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress, one of the weakest speakers of the House in American history, with George Santos's expulsion and Republican Bill Johnson leaving to take a university president job. McCarthy's departure leaves House Republicans now with a slim two-seat majority. Also, Republican Patrick McHenry also announced that he would be leaving at the end of the term republicans are dropping like flies it should be noted that MAGA republican matt gates warned recently that republicans could lose their entire house majority in the middle of this term before the 2024 election if anyone else in the conference leaves let me show you this clip of matt gates right here play the clip and our willingness to self-mutilate on these things really impairs our ability to get the job done. So let's let's do the math here, Charlie. We, we have a four-vote majority, right? Now we've kicked out George Santos. We have a three-vote majority. Congressman Bill Johnson of Ohio has taken a college university presidency. That could knock us down to two. And I don't really think Kevin McCarthy's sticking around long. Every image of his office shows that he's packing things up in boxes. So we (laughs) could be down to a one-seat majority. We got a bunch of these octogenarians at our
0: conference. So why don't you go, Matt If any of them
3: were to cross the Rainbow Bridge, we would would be in a situation where we could literally lose the majority because we were so eager to throw George Santos out before even being convicted. It is not in accordance with the precedent, it is not in accordance with due process, and it is just tactically freaking stupid. As our editor-in-chief Ron Kowski said, I guess MAGA Republican Lauren Boebert will now have to start to leave the clubs early and start making votes on time. He remember when <laughs> she missed the vote and then lied and claimed that this was a protest that she was making here, play this clip. Yeah. Yeah. Responses are coming in right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene writes, well, now in 2024, we will have a one-seat majority in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Congratulations, Freedom Caucus, for one and 105 representatives who expelled our own for the other. I can assure you the Republican voters didn't give us the majority to crash the ship. Hopefully no one dies. That's coming from Marjorie Mm -hmm. Taylor Greene right there. Kevin McCarthy then posted just now on social media that he will be resigning at the end of this year on a pretty much bipartisan basis. This is the only thing seemingly linking MAGA with the rest of the world all despising Kevin McCarthy. The responses to Kevin McCarthy's post, peace out, clown, you will <laughs> not be missed. Hey Kevin, <laughs> don't let the door hit you on the way out. Matt Gates was right. You effed around, you found out. Thank you for being an example of what happens when you lie to your base, the American people. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, you useless rhino. <laughs> and then Matt Gates responded, <laughs> hashtag gaveled out. Matt Gates also then posted Mick Leavitt in response to Kevin McCarthy announcing that he would be uh, resigning from the House of Representatives. Um, here, by the way, is Representative Tim Burchett, who Kevin McCarthy recently elbowed in the kidney. Tim <laughs> Burchett on Newsmax suggesting that he has compromise on Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> Play this clip. He also has $17 million.
2: Um, in an account um, that he'll be messing in a lot
4: of people like mine and Nancy Mace's campaigns I'm sure and so um, I don't know if he know. does that with Nancy May she could come back at him with some stuff that he doesn't want out there in yeah. the public I think if you know what I'm saying yeah she she's already told me she said I hope he does that with me
2: and um, and she'll take care of him she takes care of her own but I And we
3: should not forget when Kevin McCarthy went on the Mark Levin show and told Mark Levin that he wished that George Santos had more power than President Joe Biden. Play the clip. First, a very quick question. Who has more power, Joe Biden or George Santos? (laughs) Well, right now, I think it is the President Joe Biden, unfortunately. So how many questions have you been asked and hear from a few months back? Kevin McCarthy saying that the Republican Party is just an embarrassment to the nation right now. Play this clip. No, this is not a time to play games. This is, a, this is embarrassing mm-hmm. for the Republican Party. It's embarrassing for the nation. And, we- and let's not forget, though, that Kevin McCarthy had an opportunity to do the right thing after the January 6th insurrection. We know that Kevin McCarthy was on a recording with... Liz Cheney and other MAGA Republicans where he stated that he was going to tell Donald Trump to resign after the January 6th insurrection, but then Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago, here's the photo right here. Kevin McCarthy then told other MAGA Republicans that um, the reason that he went was that he needed to comfort Donald Trump because Donald Trump was having trouble eating, Kevin McCarthy said, and was feeling sick and sad following the insurrection. So Kevin McCarthy said that's why he went to Mar-a-Lago. But then, of course, we have Kevin McCarthy on audio recording saying that he would tell Donald Trump to resign. Play the clip
5: hearing that he might resign is there any reason to think that might happen i've had some few discussions my gut tells me no um i'm seriously thinking we're having that conversation with him tonight
3: i haven't talked to him in a couple of days um from what i know of him i mean you guys all know him too do you think he'd ever back away but McCarthy goes on to say he believed Trump no. would be impeached and possibly even removed from office by the Senate.
4: The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Uh I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he
3: would take it, but I don't know. So basically, throughout Kevin McCarthy's tenure, we saw someone weak, spineless, flustered, never could actually uh, negotiate anything, and then would project and 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 lecture people, and he would tell people how to be, well, this is how you need to be a good negotiator. This is what you should be doing. I love this one right here by Vice President Harris, where she says, I don't really think Kevin McCarthy should be the one telling people how to negotiate anything. Mm-hmm. Here, play this clip. Kevin McCarthy was here this morning, mm-hmm. and he was, uh,
4: in very stark terms, effectively said that he did not believe that President Biden uh, was the same President Biden that he used to talk to. Went so far as to say that when they were having the debt negotiations that he didn't even think he was negotiating with him. That he thought he was looking at cards and that if the information effectively wasn't on the cards he wasn't able to do it.
6: With all due respect.
5: (laughs) When anyone who has had the experience that he has most recently had, I don't think he's a judge of negotiations. (laughs) Um.
3: So, folks, Kevin McCarthy is done embarrassing, humiliating, unfortunately, very damaging. A tenure in the House of Representatives that will live in infamy, that will be a footnote uh or perhaps a a broader uh analysis there about his utter disgraceful behavior his utter humiliation it's just oh my gosh kevin mccarthy see you later from the midas touch network (laughs) kevin mccarthy's out one point i do want to make though and this was an interesting thought shared by norman ornstein with the Santos seats vacancy and now McCarthy, the House majority is down to two. Democrats need to be prepared to act swiftly and decisively if the numbers drop below 218, if only for a day. Quick motion to vacate Jeffrey's speaker, immediate agenda. Well, we'll keep you posted. I'm Ben Micellis. Kevin McCarthy out. I'm C. This touch network. And subscribe we're on our way to two million subscribers. Hey, mind is love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. She At- don't need no
0: Instagram. She just uses Tistagram. Um Fingers crossed. Fingers cross. Uh, being a Republican means to be a conspiracy theorist, not a patriot.
4: section three
0: That'd be awesome if uh, McCarthy testified against him. (laughs) Trump's last hope of dismissing case vanishes before his eyes 15 hours ago. Yeah, no immunity. The infographics show why here? Real reason why Nazi officers fled to Argentina after World War II.
4: It looks like the The Fed has has just declared declared war
0: war on Americans again.
4: Because... Did you or your parents grow up with a Nazi war criminal living on your street? A dithering old man who was once a ruthless mass murderer in Germany or Poland. After all, some of you out there lived among those war criminals. More of you than you might think. You'll agree with us in about 25 minutes. At the end of April 1945, the smell of Adolf Hitler's smoldering flesh filled the nostrils of the few people who witnessed his ad hoc cremation in the Reich Chancellery Garden. Berlin was in flames. The Red Army was marching in, leaving piles of dead German soldiers and civilians in its wake. The grand prize. Many of the highest-ranking Nazis, the chief executioners, sadistic scientists, and the demented doctors were scurrying from Germany like rats from a house fire, some of them with assistance from the very people they have been fighting against for six years. On April 30th, Hitler said his goodbyes to the 20 or so people in the Führerbunker in Berlin. He had already informed a select group of men of the plan, burn me until there's nothing left of me. Don't let those Soviets take my body as a trophy. Turn me into ashes, Hitler demanded. Don't leave anything. Still, when Hitler gave that order, he knew there was still a possibility of escape. His private pilot, Hans Bauer, whom Hitler had a very close bond with, had pleaded for his boss to get the hell out of the bunker and fly to freedom. Bauer had been saying this for weeks. Even when the Red Army shells made Hitler jump every so often, Bauer was still sure he could fly his Fuhrer to safety. In the weeks and days leading up to the end, Bauer's Fuhrer squadron had been ready to leave Germany from at least six airfields in and around Berlin. There were many options as to where to go. The Baltic Coast, maybe, or further afield. Greenland, Manchuria, Argentina, Japan. Arab sheiks would even help hide Hitler. Hitler wasn't impressed, so Bauer told him again, right at the end, he had a fieseler five 156 Starch light plane waiting. He could take off from the Tiergarten near Brandenburg Gate and head straight to Bavaria, from there to safety on the other side of the world. Hitler again refused. He was not going to spend his life on the run, not like the others. He thanked Bauer for his concern and his duty to the fatherland and handed him one of his prized possessions, a portrait of the Prussian King Frederick the Great. And so on that day, sometime in the late afternoon, Bauer was there when Hitler's dead body was wrapped in a blood-stained rug and taken into the garden. Tears filled Bauer's eyes. Just days before, he'd watched his Fuhrer feed nuts to squirrels in that garden. Hitler had been the best man at his wedding, and now he was being doused in gasoline, treated no. Better than the garbage. On May 1st, Hitler's propaganda chief, the ever loyal Joseph Goebbels, also became a smoldering mass of flesh and bone in that garden. His wife Magda burned next to him. The Soviets would find at least some of their remains. Turned out that the cremation job was a shoddy one. The Soviets, under the ruthless leader Joseph, man of steel Stalin, did not want dead bodies. This was no good. He wanted to capture those top Nazis. Like the USA, the Soviets wanted the scientists, they wanted the spies, the great swaths of German intelligence, the doctors who had medical data no other country had. There were many precious and valuable items among that Berlin rubble, but the real treasure were the Nazis themselves. Bauer did not get that far. The road he planned to use as an airstrip had been bombed and was covered in potholes. Hitler was right not to go. The street was crawling with soldiers from the Soviet Third Shock Army. They found Bauer and shot him in both legs. Not too far away, the Nazi chancellery head, Martin Bormann, one of Hitler's closest who fled at the same time as Bauer, was killed by Soviet artillery. It would be years until Bormann's death was confirmed, for Decades, there were rumors about his whereabouts
0: we're listening to this kind of horrible thing about it's called the real reason why Nazi officers fled to Argentina after World War II apparently uh, you know dictators they they were safe where there were dictators and
4: another power. architect of the Holocaust. This man helped to bring millions of Jews into those camps where they would live in horrific conditions and almost always be exterminated. Eichmann was one of the men that designed the plans for the final solution. He often gave the orders to many of those who would later pass the blame on to anyone but themselves. One of them was Rudolf Haas. The testimony of Haas shocked everyone, and it suddenly made Eichmann one of the most wanted men on the planet. Haas served as the Auschwitz Commandant and was one of the people... Introducing the pesticide Zyklon B as the weapon to kill millions of people in the gas chambers. He didn't deny it. He also said something to put Mr. Eichmann in deep water. Haas was asked, Witness, did the state police as an authority of the Reich have anything to do with the destruction of the Jews in Auschwitz? He replied, Yes, insofar as I received all my orders as to the carrying out of that action from the Oberstrumpfarr, Senior Assault Unit Leader Eichmann. This name popped up time and time again, and to everyone's alarm, he wasn't one of the men about to testify in any trial. He'd done a runner, and as you'll see, he had some help. Hoss came right out with it, explaining in a written statement that he later confirmed in court, We executed about 400,000 Hungarian Jews alone in Auschwitz in the summer of 1944. He admitted to murdering 20,000 Russian POWs, as well as torturing British POWs. He said at Auschwitz, they executed 2.5 million people, while half a million more died from starvation. Some of the more important words ever written after World War II were in Haas's signed testimony. You need to hear this from the horse's mouth because it is so astonishing. I used Cyclone B, which was a crystallized Prussic acid that we dropped into the death chamber from a small opening. It took from three to 15 minutes to kill the people in the death chamber, depending on the climactic conditions. We knew when the people were dead because their screaming stopped. We usually waited about one half hour before we opened the doors and removed the bodies. After the bodies were removed, our special commandos took off the rings and extracted the gold from the teeth of the corpses. Haas explained how mothers would hide their children in the camp, how he and his men tried to keep the extermination secret from the rest of the prisoners, but the foul and nauseating stench gave it away. In relation to the mass executions, he was asked again, this entire action came to you directly from Himmler through Eichmann, who had been personally delegated. He replied, yes. So, the line of command, when Hitler... Himmler Eichmann. As you now know, Himmler was dead by this point, as was Hitler, so now Eichmann was the man that everyone wanted that the Jewish people were screaming out for. But Eichmann was nowhere to be found. After the war, he was arrested with other SS officers by U.S. troops and later sent to a work camp. He'd given the U.S. authorities the name Otto Eichmann. By the time Haas was spilling the beans, Eichmann had escaped the camp and was hiding out in Germany under the name Otto Heininger. For those escaped Nazis to survive on the run, they needed a lot of friends. One of them was the Austrian Bishop Aloy Hundt, a man who years later would refuse to admit he'd done anything wrong, famously saying, we do not believe in the eye for an eye of the Jew. It was Hundt who made it possible for Eichmann and many other war criminals to hide out in monasteries and Nazi safe houses until they had sufficient paperwork to get a passport and head to Argentina or another far-flung nation. These escape routes were called ratlines. Many of them led to countries in South America, but other chosen destinations were Mexico, Switzerland, and as you'll hear about in detail, the USA. There are various reasons why the Nazis chose South American countries. One is they could find other Germans there. Many of the countries were sympathetic to the Nazi cause. Cruel dictators would take them. There was also the fact that those countries didn't have extradition treaties. And once enough Nazis were in a certain country, they could form networks. A Nazi journalist interviewed Eichmann in 1956. These recordings were not made public until 2022. They tell you a lot about Eichmann, who quite nonchalantly admitted, I don't care about the Jews deported to Auschwitz, whether they lived or died. It was the Fuhrer's order. Jews who were fit to work would work, and those who weren't would be sent to the final solution. As he said those sobering words, Jewish Nazi hunters were sure Eichmann was somewhere in Argentina. Eichmann had actually settled in well, working various jobs and at one point becoming the department head at a Mercedes-Benz plant in Buenos Aires under the name Clement. Little did the Nazi hunters know that the CIA already knew that. The CIA even had its own Nazis in South America on its payroll many years later the agency declassified 27,000 documents about former nazis and their lives on the run one of the documents reads that eichmann is reported to have lived in argentina under the alias clemens he was actually living under the name of ricardo clement why no one told the nazi hunters is complicated it's believed that the west germans and the british also knew much that those nazi hunters wanted to know this was the cold war and perhaps those countries like the u.s had a reason for not sharing all their intelligence You'll understand this more clearly soon. For now, we'll just say some men were supposed to stay hidden. In May 1960, a group of Israeli Mossad agents sent to capture Eichmann staked out his house in San Fernando, a suburb of Buenos Aires. They watched him travel to work and back by bus. They were sure they had the right man. At one point, one of the agents went up to Eichmann and talked to him in Spanish. Eichmann got scared and guessed what was happening. But before he could run, two other agents were wrestling him to the ground. One of the worst runaway monsters of World War II had been captured this wasn't extradition in any sense of the law. It was kidnapping, but hey, what were they to do without any extradition treaties in place? The agents drugged Eichmann and smuggled him back to Israel on a plane, breaking God knows how many laws on the way. This was incredibly controversial at the time. For an architect of the Nazi genocide, Israel basically said something like, extraordinary circumstances require extraordinary measures. Eichmann was soon standing in a courtroom described by one of the 500 journalists as a thin, balding man of 55 who looked more like a bank clerk than a butcher. It was a naive thing to say. Evil doesn't snarl and have horns. It winks and wears a tie. Like the rest, Eichmann denied being the monster he'd been made out to be. He told the court he didn't kill anyone, and that he was only dealing with train timetables and technical aspects of evacuation transports. Nope, that didn't impress anyone. He was executed in 1962. When those Mossad agents were in Argentina, they had to... Meet
5: Dwellify, a simplified, one-stop-shop, home remodeling experience. Let's take you through our process.
4: When those Mossad agents were in Argentina, they had to make a sacrifice. That's because they might have also been able to capture the man that was known as the Angel of Death, the Nazi doctor that experimented on prisoners in the worst possible way, Joseph Mengele. This is the man that would walk up to Jews after they entered the camp and picked out the specimens he wanted, often the children who would later call him Uncle after he handed them candies. Little did they know they were going to be his human guinea pigs. This is how one of those kids later described being picked by Mengele. Dr. Mengele pulled me out of a queue as we were on the way from the sea logger camp to the gas chamber. I was the only one picked that day personally by Mengele and his assistant. They took me to his laboratory where I met other children. They were screaming from pain. I was injected with drugs and chemicals. On the behalf of the German pharmaceutical companies and the war effort in general, Mengele would purposefully infect people with diseases. He gave some gangrene after rubbing dirt and glass and wounds he'd made. He operated on people without anesthesia. Sometimes when he was done, he ordered them out the back of the lab where they were shot. It's not certain how many people were victims of these terrible experiments, but it was likely in the region of 27,000. It's been reported that over 4,300 of them died, and many more were rendered disabled or left with terrible scars. Lots of them later testified about the horrors they'd faced in the camp his infinitely unethical work of course was useful to the nazis in a sane world you can't experiment on humans but in the world of war the nazi war that suddenly became possible some were left outside to freeze to the point of death and then were dangerously heated up women had their muscles and nerves removed many had entire limbs hacked off some were given deadly blood infections Dr. Zdenka Nevadova-Niedla, a Czech doctor who worked alongside Mengele, later testified high amputations were performed. For example, even whole arms with shoulder blades or legs were amputated. (laughs) These operations were performed mostly on insane women who were immediately killed after the operation by a quick injection. It wasn't an easy decision for those Mossad agents to know Why? that they were giving up Mangalay in order to catch Eichmann. They'd heard the nightmarish stories, but in that contaminated sea of hidden Nazis, Eichmann <coughs> was the bigger fish. One of the Mossad agents explained it simply. When I have a bird in my hand, I don't start looking for a bird in the bush. I'll take the bird in my hand, put it in a cage, and then deal with the one in the bush. But by the time the Red Army liberated Auschwitz on the 27th of January 1945, Mengele was long gone. When the Americans got him in June, he'd already given all his important documents to a nurse. The U.S. had no idea who they had on their hands, so they released him under the name of Fritz Ohlmann, which he later changed to Fritz Holman. He stayed in Germany for a while working on farms, but when those testimonies revealed his sadistic experiments, he managed to persuade enough people he was worthy candidate for a first-class rat-line ticket. SS members helped him get to Italy, where they got a passport from the International Committee of the Red Cross. In 1949, he sailed on a ship to Buenos Aires and later worked as a carpenter under the name of Helmut Gregor. He was being careful for a good reason. A sure death sentence awaited him in Europe. But his confidence grew over the years. He made trips back to Europe to see his family, even going on a skiing holiday. Back in Argentina, he started a pharmaceutical company. He gave young women illegal abortions. He never really changed. Speaking about Brazil, he once wrote in his diary, Brazil is a nice country to live in despite the mixing of races, but there are many people who, like me, believe and are sympathetic to the Nazi movement and racial ideology. He remained a fan of eugenics, writing in another entry, weaker humans should not be permitted to reproduce. This is the only way for humankind to exist and sustain itself. During the trial of Eichmann in 1961, Mengele's name was mentioned numerous times. Later in 1963, during the Frankfurt Auschwitz trials, a witness named Vera Alexander shocked everyone in attendance when she said, There was a set of twins, gypsies, whom he took away one day from the block where I was. That was the Unerlager, the gypsy camp. Some days later he returned with them with veins in their arms and their backs sewn together. The judge couldn't believe his ears and asked her again. He sewed them together like Siamese twins? She replied, yes, he did. Alas, Mr. Mangale was never brought to justice. On February 7th, 1979, while Mangale was at a coastal resort in Brazil, he had a stroke in a swimming pool and drowned. He was seen as one of the ones that got away. But little did Americans know that fiends like him were living among them at this time. None of this would have been possible if it wasn't for those rat lines. Franz Stangl is more proof. He was one of the worst, the commander of the Sobibor and Treblinka extermination camps. It said on his hands was the blood of possibly a million Jews. This made him an even bigger fish than Mengele. In 1948, he went to see that man of the cloth, Bishop Aloy Hundel, when Hundel said to him, You must be Franz Stangl, I've been expecting you. He went first to Syria with the documents Hundel gave him, and later he headed to Brazil. With his family in tow, he worked in Sao Paulo at a Volkswagen car plant. But for once, justice was served, and Stangl was extradited. He was back in West Germany in 1967, and he was sentenced to life in prison in 1970. Just six months into that sentence, he died from heart failure. He called the Jews he killed mere numbers, cargo, as he said one time. About mass murder, he stated, that was my profession, I enjoyed it, it fulfilled me. And yes, I was ambitious about it, I won't deny that. One of his last interviews, he told a journalist, in reality, I share the guilt. 19 hours later, he was dead. Stangl, like many of the rats in the rat lines crossed the Alps into Italy, they often hid out of the Capuchin monastery near Bressanone and sometimes the Franciscan monastery near Bolzano. This was called the monastery route. From there, Rome was usually the next destination and then to far off places. In Rome, with a member of the Catholic Church having confirmed their identity, the International Committee of the Red Cross supplied them with a passport. Somewhere in the region of 120,000 papers were handed out leading up to 1951. This might sound strange, but it was due to humanitarian concerns. The so-called protective passports were for anyone at risk of persecution, including Jews during the Holocaust. Still, the organization was roundly criticized for giving those Nazis papers. This was no time for neutrality, was the usual refrain sometimes those involved in the rat lines weren't neutral in the slightest such as the u.s intelligence agencies that helped the so-called butcher of Lyon escape he was klaus barbie a man whose face stayed in his victims memories for the rest of their lives the eyes they used to say they could never forget his evil eyes like a james bond villain he interrogated people suspected of being part of the french resistance with a cat in his arms survivors testified that he'd put the cat down and walk over to his toolbox telling them You will speak to me, trust me, you will talk. They all do in the end. One of them later testified, Barbie took pleasure, a pleasure that was astounding in torturing. Another said, he had the eyes of a monster. He was savage. My God, he was savage. It was unimaginable. He butchered them in ways we can't even truly describe and then sent them to their deaths at the camps. Barbie was the head of the Gestapo Leon, whose headquarters were at the famed Hotel Terminus. This is where the torture happened.
0: Oh Leon? Come on, with your hands up, fucking Nazi
4: Trump. Trump. ...was the head of the Gestapo in Leon, whose headquarters were at the famed Hotel Terminus. This is where the torture happened, often for days on end with that damn cat of his always nearby. Not many people could hold out. Some did, though, such as a woman named Lise Le whom Barbie thought was connected to a resistance fighter named Dider. On his last attempt to torture her, after already smashing her up and freezing her in baths of ice cubes, he said in a calm voice, ''I admire you, but in the end everybody talks. What you have done is magnificent, my dear. Nobody has held out as long as you. It's nearly over now. I'm very upset, but let's finish. Go on a little effort. Who is Dider?'' She said nothing, just looked at him from her swollen eyes with a hatred she never thought she could muster. He then said, ''Liquidate her. I don't want to see her anymore.'' Stories like these were common. It was discovered after the war that Barbie sent possibly 4,000 of those people to extermination camps, including dozens of orphans. This was a man with plenty of information about spies. He had a lot of intelligence in his mind and in his little black books. So after the war, he was a man of great value, a top asset. The British got there first. Their agents beat him and interrogated him, asking him everything he knew, including the names of all the secret communists in Europe. God only knows, the U.S. wanted those names more than anyone. In fact, the U.S. took Barbie away from the Brits. A paper written on the matter reads, CIC rationalized that if unemployed, Barbie would renew his overtures to the British, who would find out that the CIC had not turned him in. The U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps, an early iteration of the CIA, knew the French wanted Barbie the Butcher to pay for his crimes, but he was just too good to give up. So the CIC put Barbie on their payroll. They said if he spied for them as an anti-communist, he'd live very comfortably and get hundreds of dollars for his work. Well, thought Barbie, that sounds better than hanging from a rope. They also promised him they'd make his name disappear, since word was already getting around about this Butcher of Léon. It wasn't an easy decision for the CIC, they knew the French wanted justice, it was just a matter of thinking about what was better in the greater scheme of things, and the agency chose to keep Barbie. Now, things get really crazy. A now declassified file states in 1951, the CIC sponsored his escape to South America via a rat line operating through Italy. The question is, who did they pay? In actions that many years later, the US Justice Department would have to issue apologies over, the CIC enlisted a fascist war criminal who was one of the main instruments of ratline escapes. He was the Croatian priest named Dr. Kunoslav Draganovic, a nasty piece of work said to be behind the murder of hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Serbs and Jews. Here is a part of a secret CIC memo that was decades later unearthed. The 430th CIC detachment has been operating with what they term a rat-line evacuation system to Central and South America without serious repercussions during the past three years. At the cost of approximately $1,000 for each adult, 430th CIC is transferring evacuees to Italy where they are provided with legal documentation obtained through devious means there. South American dictators ran a tight ship in terms of capturing and killing their enemies, and Barbie was the king of interrogations. They tortured their critics and made others go missing. Since they were anti-communist, things got the backing of the U.S. under Operation Condor. The U.S. paid for and arranged coups of democratically elected leaders, so, relatively speaking, having a Nazi on the payroll wasn't really such a big deal. There's even more circumstantial evidence that it was Barbie and the CIA working in collaboration. We now know that Barbie was also on the payroll of West Germany's Federal Intelligence Service. He was being <sharp inhale> in the US, West Germany would rather not have this come out, but we did. Barbie worked with that Barbie- <sharp inhale> indiscriminately and ruled by fear, the drug traffickers. For a while he helped Bolivia's biggest drug lord Roberto Suarez Gomez, aka the King of Cocaine. He later got pally with Pablo Escobar and his Medellin cartel. Escobar gave him money for his anti-communist work, which was kind of weird, given the U.S. was after Escobar, yet at the same time working with Barbie. It wasn't too long, though, before his identity was revealed, and he was on his way back to Europe to face the music. The spying agencies of the americans the brits and the west germans were all somewhat hot under the collar because they known all along he was alive and well working as torturer in chief in south america while trafficking drugs when he arrived at the airport in 1983 a 44 year old woman who he had tortured as a kid was there and tried to shoot him she failed and got herself arrested he was hated that much so his appearance was mightily embarrassing for the americans the Justice Department had to make that apology. Its long investigation led to a paper being written, with sections headed with things like the Army's interest in reactivating Barbie in 1965 to 67, drug trafficking, weapons trade, and Barbie's entries into the United States. While Nazi hunters were struggling to find him and the French were clueless about his whereabouts, the CIA <laughs> was writing memo in the late 60s if he could provide unique information of significant importance under secure operations. His victims hissed and screamed at him in the courtroom. Some broke down, describing in harrowing detail what had happened to them back in Lyon. Journalists were rendered speechless by what they heard. How this now old man had been the very embodiment of sadism. Barbie's lawyer tried to argue that what Barbie had done was no different from what the Americans (laughs) did in My Lai in Vietnam, what the French did in Algeria. It didn't work. He was found guilty of crimes against humanity and died four years later in prison. The question now was, who else had the CIA FBI known about all these years? Declassified documents tell us the FBI investigated the possibility of Hitler escaping through a rat line to South America. Some of the 700 FBI documents declassified in 2014 said just that, or at least wrote about the possibility of it happening. One of them states, Hitler is reported to be hiding out in the foothills of Southern Andes. The file says a meeting took place in Hollywood. A man in that meeting said he was in a group of four people who... One of them states, Hitler is reported to be hiding out in the foothills of southern Andes. The file says a meeting took place in Hollywood. A man in that meeting said he was in a group of four people who met Hitler and his party when they landed from a submarine in Argentina. More subs arrived carrying around
2: It looks like the Fed has has just declared war on Americans
4: again. again. from a submarine in Argentina. More subs arrived, carrying around 50 people, including doctors, all part of Hitler's escape party. All kinds of things were coming out, but that didn't mean they were true. The CIA, under Operation Bloodstone, had tried after the war to hire leading former Nazis in hiding so as to recruit them into the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Both J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI and Alan Dulles at the CIA were in on this. The New York Times said in a report that about a 1,000 Nazi war criminals were hired, and some ended up being given papers to move to the US. One case involved a man accused of machine gunning down 60,000 Jews in Lithuania. He was hired by the CIA as a spy and paid $1,700 a year, as well as two cartons of cigarettes each month. That was in 1952. In 1956, he was given the green light to emigrate to the US. Years later, when the FBI wanted to prosecute him, the CIA stepped in and said they couldn't do that because it would expose them. In 1980, the FBI told the Justice Department to please step aside when the latter said, we know at least 16 Nazi war criminals are living in the U.S. and working for you. They were FBI informants, giving information to the agency on who in the U.S. had sympathies for the commies. 16 had been hired, but in 1980, only 6 were still on the payroll. The FBI sent a memo to its agents reminding them the most important thing was protecting the confidentiality of such sources of information to the fullest extent possible. One of those undercover agents was SS officer Otto von Boschwing He'd worked under Eichmann and once authored a research paper on how to best terrorize Jewish people. Despite being a war criminal, he was hooked up with the CIC after the war, and later when he became the CIA, Bolschwing was one of the agency's best European spies. The CIA thanked him in 1954 when it moved him and his family to New York, what the agency said was a reward for his loyal post-war service. Another note admitted that if the Israelis find out and he's exposed as one of Eichmann's main men, it'll be embarrassing to the US. The CIA managed to keep the information about his close relationship with Eichmann under wraps for at least a while. Now they weren't all great spies. The Times wrote, but many Nazi spies proved inept or worse, declassified security reviews show some were deemed habitual liars confidence men or embezzlers and a few even turned out to be soviet double agents who knows maybe that quiet man next door your grandmother used to talk about was a nazi war criminal helped through a u.s-sponsored rat line after the war it's thought that under operation paperclip the u.s took in another 1600 german scientists some of whom were members or even leaders of the nazi party these weren't hired as spies like the other men but to do what they'd always done science Some became a big part of the Cold War space race. And don't think for a second that the Soviets didn't also employ former Nazi scientists. They put about 2,200 of them on the payroll. According to The Guardian, some Nazis also lived in the UK, and MI6 hired a few. The paper wrote in 2006, most remained in the UK, however, and were granted civilian status. Many married, started families, and by the 1990s, those who survived were British subjects. Gunther Ebeling was the commander of an annihilation squad of the SS in Warsaw, and right after the he ended up working for both the British and American spy agencies. His alias for both agencies was Slim A research paper featuring Slim and other Nazi war criminals hired by the Brits and American states At this time the British knew Slim was a war criminal Perhaps this is why they advised one of their own intelligence officers, Mr. Coleman To drop his personal friendship with him, which had formed during Operation Nursery Nevertheless, the British ID had been using Slim in coordination with their American colleagues in an anti-Nazi operation codenamed Jersey which would later develop into the better known Operation Selection Board. Operation Selection Board consisted of going after 70 ex-Nazis who were part of a right-wing, virulently anti-communist movement these rabid and dangerous war criminal anti-communists had actually believed that they would get help from the British and Americans since they were so against Stalin. It was later written, fantastic as this idea may seem. It made sense to these people, and they believed that the British and American authorities would accept it. They then decided to make the supreme effort. At the risk of certain imprisonment, if their plan failed, they sent five of their leaders to make contact with the authorities, reveal their identities as fugitives, and make their proposition. The paper also states that Klaus Barbie was responsible for the the procurement of supplies for the organization and the establishment of an intelligence network throughout the British and American zones. For a while, the agencies played along and told the Nazis they were behind them, that they'd help them set up a new right-wing government so long as they went after the communists. But the agencies hired SLIM to help them arrest these Nazi war criminals, as well as the remaining Hitler youth in Operation Nursery. In one swoop, the Americans and Brits arrested 50 of these Nazis. A book about the matter states, This was the last large organized group of Nazis to be formed in the western zone of Germany. It was completely broken up. Its activities were publicized and its story now serves as a reminder to the German people of the futility of nationalistic actions outside the scope of existing democratic processes now in operation in Germany. A different paper written about Mr. Slim states, Evidence suggests the CIC believed he was crucial to the successful completion of Operation Nursery and the breaking up of other Nazi underground organizations. But Slim's story was a common one. The Americans soon started worrying that it would get out that they and the Brits had a war criminal on their secret books. More concerning was the fact that Slim now knew way too much about American and British intelligence. What if he became a double agent? He soon became a security risk, it was said that the agencies loved the information and not the informant. The spies were highly expendable. Three British intelligence officers later tried to arrest Slim. As the saying goes, they were bringing him in. The report says Slim's rendezvous on January 18th was a trap. It says the six-foot-six huge man went through the Brits like a bowling ball. The report adds they'd been ordered to take him alive and did not in consequence use their pistols except to try to overawe him. One officer shot Slim in the foot, and he apparently went berserk, so they tried to knock him out with chloroform. The report states, finally, after a severe struggle, one of them hit Slim over the head with a loaded stick and knocked him unconscious. They shoved him in a car, pending advice from the Americans, but before they could get him to the Americans, he died in the back. We imagine his last words were something like, you double-crossing lying pieces of sh- if this story proves anything, it's that the end of the war was certainly a murky business. Now you need to watch the full version of how they finally caught the Nazi butcher, or have a look at World War II serial killer, even the Nazis wanted dead, Dr. Satan.
3: <laughs> it looks like the Fed has just
2: declared war on Americans Dr. again. Satan. Wow. Because if they force us into a digital dollar, that means digital no dollar, green.
0: No fucking yards left. You guys are still there? Oh my gosh. Her butt. It's so big. Okay, this is the infographics show. Lol. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Look, even he was so fucking evil that Nazis wanted him dead. right so it's the infographics show i'm gonna subscribe would your city survive what would happen if antarctica completely melted how it ends historian predicts how russia's war in ukraine will end why russian navy is blah 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 why was everybody connected to jfk suddenly mysteriously killed and more everyone died my are scared to deploy the SU 57 and more Ukraine news what happens when you die Russian sleep experiment explained what happens to your body while you are having sex Huh. how they got serial killer Ted Bundy It's kind of a strange position. most viewed the infographic show videos of 2019 it's three and a half hours wow seen well. El Chapo escaped prison. Alceum SEAL team took down Osama Bin Laden. The last 24 hours of death. Real prisoner, looks like. I was trapped underwater for three days. <coughs> it's 13 million views for that, by the way. Female orgasm versus male orgasm. How do they compare? Real reason China. That's interesting, though. 9 That would be good for uh, <coughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> Um, this sounds interesting. Real reason Hitler lost World War two and other Hitler stories.
4: Adolf Hitler was an idiot, and that's a good thing, because it led him to make some really bad strategic decisions during World War II. If Hitler had been a little smarter, we might very well be living in a messed up Nazi-controlled world full of Hitler youth today. Luckily, that's not how history played out. As we progress through some of Hitler's worst decisions during World War II, you might be surprised to find that it was his ego, the name of an enemy, and his belief in the occult that partially cost him the war. Let's start at the beginning. When you're a genocidal maniac like Hitler, your choice of allies can end up being pretty slim. One of the main reasons that Hitler's Nazi Germany allied itself with Italy was because no one else was crazy enough to join him but Benito Mussolini. Most historians argue that Italy wasn't Hitler's first choice for an ally, or even his second or third choice, but when your entire platform is predicated on mass genocide and ruling the world in your own deranged way, not many people can be convinced to get on board. It was Mussolini's authoritarian rule and his dislike for Jewish people that made him the perfect ally for Hitler. However, allying himself with Benito was the first mistake Hitler would make. I don't know how every family in America hasn't heard of this yet. Did you see about that new premium tax credit? The- allying himself with Benito was the first mistake Hitler would make. That would eventually lead to him losing World War II. During wartime, you want a strong and independent ally who will have your back when things get tough and can bring something meaningful to the table. Mussolini's Italy was none of those things. Time and time again, Germany would have to bail out Italian forces as they continually became pinned down or surrounded by allies. This would cost Hitler greatly, as Germany would lose valuable resources and men whenever Italy failed its missions. Choosing the wrong ally was definitely one decision that cost Hitler in the long run. But it would not be the only one, the way he handled the North African campaign started in 1940 ended up being a disaster to his cause. World War II started in Europe on September 1, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Axis forces swept across the continent, securing strategic positions and decimating anyone who stood in their way. However, the same cannot be said about their campaign in North Africa, as it was brought to a grinding halt by an unexpected force. The main objective of the North African campaign was to secure the Suez Canal, which would allow the Nazi forces to have better access to oil coming from the Middle East. The Nazis had some of the best tanks, aircraft, and naval vessels in the world, which gave them the upper hand in many battles. However, without oil to fuel these vehicles, Uh they were useless. Originally, Uh Hitler left Italy in charge of securing North Africa, while he focused on decimating Western Europe. This was his first mistake. Italy had trouble defeating Allied forces in the region from the beginning, and Hitler had to send his men and tanks down to bail them out. The distance between Germany and North Africa meant this would take time but it had to be done if the Axis powers were going to control the region. Eventually, Hitler decided to send General Erwin Rommel to the region to command the German tank forces in North Africa. His mission was to sweep across the continent from Morocco to the Middle East, and once there, he'd be in charge of maintaining control of the vast oil reserves in the region. This was a wise strategic move for Hitler but the execution was performed poorly. After some initial success, things started to fall apart in North Africa. The main problem was that Rommel just didn't have the resources or tanks necessary to get the job done. Rommel made it as far as Tobruk in Libya before he ran into some issues. He was able to capture the seaport of Tobruk, but once the Nazi forces began their advance further east, they were stopped by British General Bernard Montgomery and El Alamein. For 12 days Nazi and Italian forces tried to break the British line without success. Hitler was furious with the lack of progress in North Africa. After a second defeat at El Alamein, Rommel returned to Europe. He complained that he should have been left with the tank battalions in North Africa, where he was sure he could eventually defeat the Allied troops. However, whether it was Hitler's direct orders or his influence over the Nazis' military, Rommel was forced to stay in Germany while his forces in North Africa were defeated. The Allies had secretly landed more troops in Morocco and Algeria. They charged across the region and eventually trapped the retreating Axis forces. Altogether around 250,000 German and Italian troops were captured. This would be a definitive turning point in the war to control North Africa, and led to a huge disruption in the oil supply that fueled the Nazi war machine. As a side note, Rommel was later accused and convicted for playing a role in the 20th of July plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. This led to the general being given two options, execution by the state or death by suicide. On October 14, 1944, Rommel took down on a cyanide capsule and ended his life and career as a Nazi general. There's no clear evidence that Rommel actually played a role in the assassination attempt on Hitler's life. This may mean that rather than having a traitor killed, Hitler made the mistake of eliminating one of his best generals, as Rommel is traditionally seen as a brilliant commander in the field. And Hitler's mistakes would keep on coming. The United States played a major role in securing victory for Allied forces in Europe. However, one of the main reasons that the USA sent troops to Europe was because Hitler made the mistake of declaring war on the United States first. The US was sending supplies and resources to the Allies in Europe from very early on in the war. However, they had adopted somewhat of an isolationist policy and had no plans of directly intervening in Europe until December 11, 1941. That's when Hitler made another decision that would cost him the war. Early on in 1941, the United States had not sent or had plans to send troops to Europe. Then Pearl Harbor happened. Hitler had no idea that the Japanese were going to bomb Pearl Harbor, but he'd hoped from the beginning that Japan would pull the US into a war in the Pacific. This would cause them to focus their attention on the other side of the world, likely reducing the amount of supplies they were sending to Britain. Instead of letting those events play out, Hitler did something really dumb. He started attacking American supply ships in the Atlantic and immediately declared war on the US. Hitler was delusional, and he thought even if he destroyed American convoys and declared war on the country, the US would still be too preoccupied with Japan to retaliate. However, nothing could have been further from the truth. The United States economy was incredibly strong, and had already begun ramping up wartime production. They had the men, the resources, and now the motive to fight a war on two fronts. At the time, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was still on the fence about whether troops should be sent to Europe or if the United States should solely focus on Japan. But Hitler's decision to declare war on the US prematurely made the decision easy for him. America would go to war with Nazi Germany and kick their ass. And Hitler only had himself to blame. Just to put it in perspective on how big of a mistake this was, every year of the war the United States constructed twice as many planes and war vehicles as Nazi Germany did. The United States also had immense resources and a huge labor pool to pull from. With everyone now united under the declaration of war against the United States by Adolf Hitler, the whole country put everything they had into the war effort to defeat Nazi Germany. In the summer of 1941 Hitler would make a decision that would cost him enormous amounts of men and resources and pretty much the war itself. On June 22nd, the Nazis launched Operation Barbarossa. At the beginning of the war, Hitler was smart enough to have Soviet Russia sign a non-aggression pact, which ensured that they wouldn't attack Germany from the east. This allowed him to focus his attention on Western Europe and defeating Great Britain. However, Hitler was not smart enough to not break his own pact. He launched an invasion into Russia, which meant Germany now had to fight countries to its east and west, defeating the purpose of preventing a two-front war. This decision was a huge mistake, and one of the critical factors that cost him the war. At first, Nazi Germany seemed to have...
0: Thanks
4: for k In one of the critical factors that cost him the war, at first Nazi Germany seemed to have the upper hand. Stalin was delusional and thought that there was no way Hitler would break his promise and invade Russia. But this was Adolf Hitler we're talking about, and he obviously couldn't be trusted. The Germans amassed forces along the Russian border. In fact, they weren't even very discreet about it. Hitler had always planned to invade the Soviet Union. He just wanted to wait until all of Europe was under his control first. However, with resources running low and the need for a new source of labor, Hitler launched his invasion early. He fully committed to this decision, even though many of his military advisors warned that conquering the Soviet Union and fighting a two-front war would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible. He ignored them and launched the offensive into Russia anyway. At the beginning of the invasion, the Nazis were winning almost every battle. Hitler patted himself on the back for a job well done and scoffed at anyone who was still wary of sending troops into Russian territory. History has shown that trying to take over Russia never works out well for the invading force. Nazi morale was high as they marched further and further into the Soviet Union. The dirt roads were passable in the summer months and the Nazi uniforms provided enough warmth to stay relatively comfortable even at night. Hitler was so convinced that the war in Russia would be over quickly that he held off on sending more supplies and winter gear to the troops who were advancing further into the Soviet Union. But as the winter months approached, the weather began to change. The tide of the war in Russia was about to shift. Operation Barbarossa was a massive offensive with three different attack forces spread across approximately 1,800 miles of land. As all three parts of the German army started to reach their objectives, they were slowed down by terrible weather, lack of food, and depletion of resources. The Russian people destroyed their own villages, farms, and factories as they retreated further into the Soviet Union to get away from the Nazi invasion. Hitler's original plan had been to resupply his troops using Russian resources as they made their way across the country. It was too long a distance to constantly be resupplying his forces from Germany. Plus, the whole point of invading the Soviet Union was to secure more resources. However, the Russian people left very little of use. behind due to their scorched earth policy. When the northern offensive reached Leningrad, they thought that it would fall quickly, as the rest of Russia did, but this was not the case. The Germans couldn't manage to secure Leningrad from the Russians, and resources were running dangerously low. On top of that, the Nazi forces in the south also ran into trouble. They were stopped dead in their tracks by entrenched Russian soldiers and couldn't advance any further. Hither was furious, he ordered the middle offensive to send troops to the north and south, which weakened the middle force, while not improving the situation in the other regions by much. The slowing down of the German advance allowed the Soviets to regroup. Over a million troops and a thousand tanks were sent to Moscow to protect the capital. The Nazis were now stopped on all fronts. They couldn't manage to take Leningrad in the north, and due to their Soviet reinforcements in the middle of the country and the changing of the weather, capturing Moscow was a lost cause as well. It was becoming more and more clear that Hitler's decision to invade Russia was a huge mistake. The Germans had not brought enough winter supplies due to Hitler's overconfidence. He also gravely underestimated the resilience of the Russian people and how many of them would join in the cause to stop Germany from taking their land. Stalin had a huge population to fuel his war machine and the resources contained within the soviet union's borders allowed them to quickly resupply while the germans struggled to get simple things such as food and warm clothes to their troops while the invasion of soviet russia was failing hitler seemed to lose his mind he started blaming everyone else for his bad decisions This led to another huge mistake. Rather than listening to his generals and advisors who knew more about war than he did, Hitler decided to make himself commander-in-chief of the Nazi army. He couldn't believe that his troops hadn't yet secured Russia. They would have to double their efforts, and anyone who ever mentioned the word retreat would be executed. Everyone who had been serving on the front lines of the war knew that trying to subdue Russia and take its capital would be a lost cause. But Hitler would hear none of it. He wanted Moscow to fall, and he wanted it bad, so he put himself in charge of the military to make sure that no one did anything rash like withdraw and come up with a better plan. Hitler was going to take Russia or lose the war trying, which is exactly what he did. He had to put himself in an unwinnable position, fighting two fronts while also bringing the United States into the fray, and he was quickly running out of resources. Things were about to go from bad to worse, and it all had to do with Hitler's next few decisions. Hitler often let his feelings get in the way of making good wartime decisions, and perhaps there's no better example than the Battle of Stalingrad, which began in August of 1942 as part of the Nazi's southern advance into Russia. The city was a manufacturing hub for the soviets which meant it had great strategic importance the nazis did not necessarily need to secure the entire city in order to disrupt the russian supply chain instead all they really needed was to blockade stalingrad to make sure nothing got in or out however hitler had something else in mind For Hitler, there was almost nothing more important than taking the city of Stalingrad. Not because of its importance, but because it was named after Joseph Stalin, the then-leader of the Soviet Union. Hitler believed that it'd be a huge blow to Russian morale and a huge boost to his own ego if the Nazis took the city bearing the leader's name. To be fair, Stalingrad would have provided the Nazis with desperately needed fuel and supplies, but Hitler couldn't help but let his feelings get involved in this wartime decision. For three months, the Nazis tried to take the city. They were unsuccessful due to Hitler's obsession with conquering Russia on all fronts, rather than focusing his troops on one location the nazis even had taken much of the oil fields and resource-rich areas of ukraine and crimea but rather than holding the line and coming up with a better plan hitler ordered his troops forward to the meat grinder of stalingrad this was a huge mistake because it left their rear flank vulnerable to counterattack. Whether Hitler realized this and just didn't care or he was too focused on taking Stalingrad to notice is up for debate. Regardless, Soviet generals did notice and they sent a force to attack the rear guard of the Nazi army. The Soviets managed to break through the Nazi defenses and surround them. This allowed the Soviets to cut off desperately needed supplies by capturing military bases and airfields as they tightened their hold in the region. Hitler ordered General Friedrich Paulus, who was in charge of the Nazi forces in southern Russia, to continue fighting or be court-martialed and let someone else take over. Paulus decided to take the third option and save the lives of many of his men as possible by surrendering to the Soviets instead. Due to Hitler's crazed attempt to take Stalingrad, which was done mostly because of the name, the Nazis lost hundreds of thousands of men in southern Russia. After Stalingrad, there was no hope of Hitler turning the war around. The Nazi forces were now retreating back toward Germany, the Soviets capturing anything they left behind and wiped out Nazi forces that got in their way. By the beginning of 1943, not only had Hitler lost millions of troops and vehicles, but he was losing the confidence of his people. The low morale of civilians and military personnel alike would cause the nazi war machine to be less effective early footage of nazi rallies show huge crowds of enthralled people hanging on hitler's every word however after the eastern front began to collapse and the threat of a soviet invasion loomed on the horizon the german people started to panic and lose faith in their fearless leader the final nail in the coffin was the failed attempt to invade the soviet union and secure moscow and stalingrad this wiped out any remaining morale left in the german people to make matters worse, Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt had just met in Casablanca and decided it was time to commence bombing runs on German soil. This led to death and destruction at home, which the German people had not experienced up to this point. It was a re-
6: Keep your skin smooth with
2: our back buns. This all-in-one massage back balls, body scrub brush.
4: Death and destruction at home, which the German people had not experienced up to this point. It was a real eye-over Still there? might not be able to deliver on...
0: Oh, my gosh, you are. Surprise, surprise. It's called The Real Reason Hitler Lost World War II and Other Hitler Stories Compilation.
4: Opener ...that their Fuhrer might not be able to deliver on all the promises he made, and the war might be, in fact, a total loss. At the end of the summer in 1943, incendiary bombs were dropped on Hamburg. The destruction and fire they caused destroyed practically the entire city and killed around 40,000 people. After the bombing run, approximately 900,000 Germans were left homeless. The war had now become very real for the average German citizen. It also became clear that many in the military were losing faith in the Führer. Over 20,000 Nazi troops were court-martialed and executed for various reasons, most of which stemmed from their lack of confidence in Adolf Hitler. Without the trust and enthusiasm of his people and military personnel, there is no way that Hitler could win the war. The only thing worse for Hitler than having the Russians closing in from the east, Italy falling apart in the south, and military supplies running low on all fronts, would be if the British and Americans somehow managed to land in France and secure a foothold on mainland Europe. On June 6, 1944, Hitler's worst fear came to be. On top of being crazy, egotistical, and power-hungry monster, Hitler was also gullible. He allowed the Allies to trick him and his generals into deploying troops at the wrong locations along the Atlantic Wall as D-Day was carried out. The Allies knew they'd be landing at Normandy, but they definitely didn't want Hitler to know that, so they used false radio broadcasts, dummy aircraft, and misinformation to trick Hitler into moving his forces away from the actual landing zones. The plan worked and when Allied forces stormed the beaches, they met much less resistance than they would have otherwise. There's no doubt that the D-Day invasion was a gruesome and terrible moment in World War II history that cost the lives of thousands of Allied soldiers, but it ended up being successful because of the Allies' ability to trick Hitler. With Allied troops now on mainland Europe, there was nowhere to run. Nazi forces were recalled back to the fatherland, as an invasion of Germany was now imminent. All of the key events mentioned thus far were not the only reasons Hitler lost the war, There were some factors that Hitler handled poorly throughout the entire conflict that led to his demise. These can't be pinpointed to a specific event or battle, but instead show how a bloodthirsty tyrant can let his vision for world domination get in his own way. Perhaps the biggest mistake that Hitler made was overextending his forces. This was such a problem because throughout the war, maintaining supply lines was a huge issue for the Nazis. They constantly found themselves in need of more resources, the most important of which were fuel and food to supply their vehicles and troops. In the initial months of the war, Power secured vast amounts of land across Europe and North Africa. However, this meant that supplies and resources needed to travel incredibly long distances to reach troops. Vehicles and ammunition that were made in Germany could take weeks or months to reach the front lines. might sound crazy, but Nazi Germany even had to rely pretty heavily on horses to transport supplies to some regions due to a lack of vehicles and landscape. This meant Hitler's war machine moved quickly at first, but then came to a grinding halt as supplies took forever to get where they needed to go. If he was somehow able to quickly move the resources and his troops needed throughout the entire war, it's likely Hitler could have won. The German supply line also forced Hitler into one of the biggest mistakes in World War II. Nazi forces needed oil, and they needed a lot of it. This was the main reason why Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. If he had been able to secure oil, steel, and food from any other source, he could have avoided starting a war with Russia, which would have meant Germany wouldn't have needed to fight a war on two fronts. Therefore, it was the lack of resources and supply line issues that were the overarching cause that led to Adolf Hitler losing World War II. Perhaps the most surprising factor that led to Hitler's defeat wasn't anything to do with the military or supply chain at all. Instead, perhaps his obsession with magic and the occult was a driving factor behind some of his worst decisions. The Nazis' fascination with the occult wasn't just made up to create indiana jones movies instead mysticism played a pretty important role in hitler's decision-making policies for example the nazis were constantly on the search for the holy grail as the promise (laughs) of everlasting life was a huge draw for hitler and his entourage of occultists hitler and the rest of the nazi leadership were not christians but they still believed that certain relics were imbued with mystical powers but the search for mystical relics was only one aspect of hitler's use of the occult he actually used pretty strange practices to help make some wartime decisions as well some accounts were Report that Hitler and Nazi military leaders frequently used a pendulum and dousing rod to determine the location of Allied warships on maps of the ocean these devices have no actual magical powers or any measurable effect on determining the location of an object, including naval vessels. So any decisions made using these techniques would be as good as if Hitler had just closed his eyes and randomly pointed to an area on the map with his finger to determine where the Allied forces were. Other important military decisions were made under the advisement of astrologers, magicians, and tarot card readers. Again, there's no scientific basis that any of these practices can have a positive effect on wartime decisions. Belief in the occult and mysticism definitely played less of a role in Hitler losing World War II than the other factors discussed in this video but you can't help but wonder how many of his bad decisions were actually the result of following the advice of psychics what it's... these devices have no actual magical powers or any magical powers. And military and leaders frequently used a pendulum and dowsing rod to determine <laughs> the location of allied warships on maps of the ocean. These devices have no actual magical powers or any measurable effect on determining the location of an object, including naval vessels. So, any decisions made using these techniques would be as good as if Hitler had just closed his eyes and randomly pointed to an area on the map with his finger to determine where the Allied forces were. Other important military decisions were made under the advisement of astrologers, magicians, and tarot card readers. Again, there's no scientific basis that any of these practices can have a positive effect astrologers, on m- decisions. Magicians but even the and, and mysticism tarot played less of a role in Hitler losing World War II than the other factors discussed in this video. But you can't help but wonder how many of his bad decisions were actually the result of following the advice of psychics or in pursuit of some magical artifact. It's late April 1945. Adolf Hitler is in the throes of a nervous breakdown. It's the end for him, and he knows it. He calls for one of his secretaries, Gertrude Traudel-Junga, and tells her to take down his last will and testament. Tearfully, she listens and writes down his insane words his takes on all things? All of this bloodshed is not my fault. The four other witnesses in that room, as well as Hitler, will be dead within 24 hours. We'll talk in depth later about the deranged will and testament, which encapsulates just how insane he was. Hitler had known for a long time before that, maybe since 1943, that the war was lost, but he still clung on to the hope that there might be peace negotiations. Then at the beginning of 1945, his enemies encroached further and further toward Berlin. The Soviet Red Army was intent on crushing Germany, The Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, whom Hitler had the nerve to call a barbarian, knew victory was close. In January alone, 450,000 Germans died, and in the three months that followed, 280,000 died. This was more German casualties than from 1942 to 1943, which shows you just how stubborn the Nazis were in not accepting defeat. In February, Hitler... What? You want me to try this fake game? Alright, let's see what it is. So this is Lost War, and I've got no idea why. Hitler's command in Hungary watched as his men fell into a state of utter gloom. In his report, he wrote, Amid all these stresses and strains, no improvement in morale or performance is visible. The numerical superiority of the enemy, combined with the knowledge that the battle is now being fought on German soil, has proved very demoralizing for the men. German people ran from their homes as the Soviets moved in. One woman wrote, The world is a very lonely place without family, friends, or even the familiarity of a home. In April, a Russian soldier wrote to his beloved back home saying, At first, the fascists fought back fiercely, but they could not endure this hell. Everything is bound to finish soon. On April 16th, Soviet forces had invaded Berlin. Finally, inhabitants heard the gunfire not far off in the distance. Some people ran to the shops to get what remained of food. One of them, Ruth Andreas Friedrich, poetically wrote, Before us lies the endless city, black in the black of night, cowering as if to creep back into the earth, and we are afraid. The Nazis still relentlessly kept on killing. They emptied jails and shot those who resided there. German firing squads killed scores of people deemed a non-supporter of the regime. POWs and concentration camp prisoners were lined up and massacred. The order given by Hitler was to keep going. But Berlin was doomed, with now even the Hitler Youth fighting toe-to-toe with the enemy. One woman explained what she saw, saying there were young baby faces peeping out beneath oversized steel helmets and that it was frightening to hear their high-pitched voices. She said this went against human nature, and nothing could be better accredited to the madness of war. You might wonder why so many people fought on in Germany. The historian Max Hastings wrote in his book, Inferno, that the Germans were well aware of the fact that they would be given no mercy from the Red Army. It was a matter of fighting back or being murdered. The Russians had been on the wrong end of so much savagery themselves, they weren't in the mood for sparing the enemy, which, as they saw it, was all of Germany. Still, the atrocities committed on German civilians can't be ignored. One woman starkly summed it up, saying, It can't be me this is happening to, so I'm expelling it all from me. It was during these last few days of barbarity that Hitler sat in his bunker under the Reich Chancellery. After hearing of the death of U.S. President Roosevelt on April 12th, he'd actually held out some hope that the new president, Harry Truman, would sign a peace treaty. That didn't happen, of course. Hitler suffered a breakdown on April 22nd when he heard that his orders for a counterattack hadn't been followed through. He screamed and cursed the people he said had betrayed him. It was on this day that Hitler finally admitted to himself that all was lost. This was two days after his birthday, which you can understand didn't involve much celebration. He did, however, make this his last public appearance to congratulate some Hitler youth who were ready to die for him. He was in such a state, he had to keep one of his shaking hands clasped behind his back. He then went back to the bunker, knowing his life would soon be over. It was there that he would be married to his mistress, Eva Braun. We know that in the last day or two, one of the many things that occupied her mind was hiding her precious jewelry. In her last letter to her friend, Herta Ostermeyer, she wrote, On no account must Heise's bills be found. What should I say to you? I cannot understand how it should have come to all this, but it is impossible anymore to believe in God. Many of Hitler's inner circle made their plans to escape Berlin. Second in command, Hermann Göring was one of them. Goring had told Hitler on his birthday that he had business to take care of and he needed to go over to southern Germany. That much was true. He was trying to ship his stolen art treasures out of Berlin. So like Braun, he was worried about losing things of monetary value. Not long after, it would get back to Hitler that Goring had spoken to the enemy. This infuriated Hitler, and it would make Goring a prominent feature in his will. Martin Orman, Hitler's private secretary in the Nazi party chancellery, was one of the inner circle to stay behind in the bunker. He'd later flee after seeing the end of his leader, but he'd be dead soon enough, too. Then there was the propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, who was also there those last few days. He would be made chancellor of Germany, but in the end, he, his wife, and six kids would all be lost in that bunker. As Berliners were suffering unimaginable torments that late April, Goebbels made one final announcement. He said, I call on you to fight for your city. Fight with everything you've got for the sake of your wives and your children, your mothers and your parents. Your arms are defending everything we have ever held dear and all the generations that will come after us proud and courageous, the inventive and cunning. How both he and Hitler could still ask people to fight in the face of certain laws was a testament to their egoism and insanity. Then on April 27th, Hitler got word that another of his closest had betrayed him. He heard through a BBC report that Reichsfuhrer SS Heinrich Himmler had tried to negotiate a surrender with the enemy. Hitler raged like he'd never raged before. To him, that meant one thing, treason. Hitler ordered the arrest of Himmler, after which Himmler went into hiding. Two didn't survive many more days. It was true, though, what Hitler had heard. Himmler had attempted to negotiate peace. Hitler's world was falling apart, but he still decided that there was still time to get married. At the stroke of midnight on April 28th, Hitler and Eva Braun tied the knot. Both Goebbels and Bormann were there at the ceremony, but as you can imagine, with the Red Army just around the corner, it wasn't the merriest of affairs. If there was any kind of event, it only involved having a wedding breakfast with booze. Lots of booze. At some point, Braun signed off on the marriage certificate, and she wrote Eva B, only to cross out the B and then write Hitler. She was now proudly Eva Hitler, but she wouldn't get much time to enjoy the marriage. Hitler's barber, August Vollenhaupt, would usually trim his mustache at around 11 a.m. This was also usually the time that his valet, Heinz Linge, would visit him each morning. Linga would act as a kind of referee, saying the German for on your marks while holding a stopwatch ready as quickly as possible as if playing a child's game, then Lenka would pass Hitler his spectacles and the morning newspaper. One of those days close to his death, Hitler wasn't exactly in a great mood. He looked at Lenka seriously and said, he must never allow my corpse to fall into the hands of the Russians. They would make a spectacle in Moscow out of my body and put it in waxworks. Lenka also gave Hitler some cocaine drops for his painful right eye. He also handed him some pills for a flatulence problem. Hitler had many health problems close to the end, for which he took something like 28 different medications. In fact, he was starting to look like a man on the verge of dying from natural causes. Hitler Youth, who later escaped the bunker, described what the Fuhrer looked like during those final days. He said, He was like a ghost. He didn't seem to see me or anyone. He just stared ahead, lost in thought. At that moment, the bunker was shaken by a strong tremor as a bomb hit. Dirt and mortar trickled down on us, but he made no attempt to brush it off. He looked so much more unhealthy than 10 days earlier at his birthday reception when I had first met him. It looked like he was suffering from jaundice. His face was shallow. It was around this time that Hitler had heard the news about the death of the Italian fascist leader, Benito Mussolini. He'd been summarily executed, which could only mean one thing to Hitler. He too, he knew, would very likely suffer a similar fate. Even worse, he heard that Mussolini, along with his dead mistress, had been dumped like dead cattle in Milan's Palazzo Loreto. the crowd spat on their bodies before hanging them up by meat hooks. Hitler then heard that the Dachau concentration camp had fallen to the hands of the Americans. He very likely heard what happened there. The U.S. soldiers had been so appalled at what they saw, they gave no quarter to the German soldiers they captured. Lieutenant Colonel Felix L. Sparks later said the smell of death was overpowering. What those soldiers witnessed was human cruelty on another level. It may never be known what happened on that day. Some reports say U.S. soldiers massacred 520 Germans. But other reports say the number was as low as 50. After an investigation, it was ruled that while international law had been breached, in the light of the conditions which greeted the eyes of the first combat troops, it is not believed that justice or equity demand that the difficult and perhaps impossible task of fixing individual responsibility now be undertaken. Hitler, on hearing the news in his bunker, likely thought about this violent retribution, while the image of the dead Mussolini and his mistress were still in his mind. Also in the distance, he knew the Soviet army was laying waste to his city. It was around this time, that Hitler called that secretary Troutel Junga. She would, definitely...
0: we're listening to this very interesting thing called The Real Reason Hitler Lost World War II, another Hitler Stories compilation. And we are avoiding commercials. Advanced yeah, woman in
4: 2002 and always said she wasn't aware yeah. of the. U.S. soldiers massacred 520 the last Germans. 24 hours of Hitler's life. Was as low as 50. After an investigation, it was ruled that while international law had been breached, in the light of the conditions which greeted the eyes of the first combat troops, it is not believed that justice or equity demand that the difficult and perhaps impossible task of fixing individual responsibility now be undertaken.
0: now oh, what does that fucking mean?
4: In his bunker, likely thought about this violent retribution, while the image of the dead Mussolini and his mistress were still in his mind. Also in the distance, he knew the Soviet army was laying waste to his city. It was around this time that Hitler called that secretary Junga. She would die an old woman in 2002, and always said she wasn't aware of the depth of Nazi atrocities. She also admitted she loved her dear leader, something in later life that gave her cause to feel guilty. She once said, I admit, I was fascinated by Adolf Hitler. He was a pleasant boss and a fatherly friend. I deliberately ignored all the warning voices inside me and enjoyed the time by his side, almost until the bitter end. It wasn't what he said, but the way he said things, and how he did things. She said Hitler made it clear to everyone in the bunker that the one thing that he could not allow was his body to fall into the hands of the encroaching Soviets. As for the writing of his will, Junga had woken up from her usual nap around 11 p.m. After that, she went to see Hitler, as she would usually drink tea with him at that time. Hitler's vegetarian cook, Fräulein Constance Manzeli, also attended the tea-drinking sessions. But that night, when she knocked at the door, something was different. Hitler said to her, Have you had a nice little rest, child? She replied, yes, I've slept a little. Hitler said, come along, I want to dictate something. One thing he told her was that he wanted his body to be cremated. He said he wanted his art collection to go to a gallery in the town of Linz, which he called his hometown. As for the little things of perhaps more sentimental value, or what he called items for the maintenance of a modest, simple life, they should go to relatives and his faithful workers. Anything else of value, he said, should go to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Here's a snippet from his testament, word for word. Since I did not think I should take responsibility for entering into marriage during the years of combat, I've decided now, before termination of my life on this earth, to marry the woman who, after many years of true friendship, entered voluntarily into this already almost besieged city to share my fate. She goes to death with me as my wife, according to her own desire." He then went for a bit, talking about how he'd given his life to the service of his country, saying he had not intended to go to war in 1939. He said that the reason for the war it was desired and provoked entirely by those international statesmen who were either of Jewish origin or worked in the Jewish interest. He had the gall to add, the responsibility of the outbreak of this war cannot rest on me. He even said history won't blame him for the bloodbath of the war, but will blame international Jewry and its assistance. The British, she said, were offered a solution to what he called the Polish-German problem, but the responsible circles in English politics wanted war. He then called out Himmler and Goring as traitors and wrote down a list of names who should fulfill certain positions. His final words? Above all, I obligate the leadership of the nation and its followers to the most minute observation of the radical laws and to pitiless resistance against the universal prisoner of all people, International Judaism. Given at Berlin, 29th of April, 1945, 4 a.m., Adolf Hitler. There were four witness names, Goebbels, Bormann, Bergdorf, and Krebs. All four would soon be dead. Sometime later, while Hitler's SS bodyguards were destroying all the documents around the bunker, doctors followed orders and poisoned his much-loved Atlassian dog, Blondie. Braun Spaniel was also forced into the afterlife. Mm. It was around this time, someone heard Braun say, I would rather die here. I do not want to escape. A lot of silent handshaking took place as Hitler looked for the last time into the eyes of people that had supported him. It seems that Braun's last words were to the secretary, Junga, who accepted the gift of a coat. With it, she heard the words, Take my fur coat as a memory. I always like well-dressed women. It was Goebbels that announced the death of Hitler, stating in a message that the time of death was 3.30 p.m., April 30th. Hitler and Braun were subsequently cremated in the Garden of the Reich Chancellery as Soviet artillery could be heard close by. Goebbels and Bormann soaked the bodies in petrol and lit them, after which they gave the Nazi salute. The fighting didn't just stop after that. As an observer of this extra bloodshed, a British lieutenant named David Frazier remarked, There is still too much vile cruelty in the world for us to be able to say with true satisfaction, good is victorious. Let's hope nothing like it ever happens again. Flickbait, misinformation, so-called fake news. If 2020 felt a bit like a propaganda nightmare, it's nothing compared to the terrifying power of Hitler's propaganda machine. Carefully orchestrated propaganda campaigns allowed Hitler and the Nazis to sow hatred, encourage violence, and get away with unimaginable atrocities. Life in Germany after the First World War was bleak. After losing the war and being made to sign the harsh Treaty of Versailles, Germany was forced to relinquish huge amounts of territory, and the country fell into a deep recession. Unemployment was sky high, and inflation was running rampant. In 1914, before the war, a loaf of bread cost the equivalent of 13 cents. By the end of the war in 1919, the cost had doubled to 26 cents. By 1922, three years after the war had ended, a loaf of bread cost $700. But things would get so, so much worse in the post-war years. By the end of 1923, the price of bread had skyrocketed to the equivalent of of 100 billion dollars. <laughs> the economy had collapsed and the German currency had become worthless. Unable to feed their families or make ends meet, morale among the German population plummeted. This astounding reversal of fortunes for the once mighty nation created the perfect conditions for
0: thanks 3K
4: perfect conditions for the Nazis to rise to power. The National Socialist Party, or the Nazis, came to power in 1933, and Hitler wasted no time in implementing his devious plans to restore Germany to its former glory. Over the next few years, he began to rebuild the German military in direct violation of the Versailles Treaty, attempted to boost morale by praising the German people as a superior race, and blamed all of Germany's problems on so-called traitors like communists, Jews, and other minorities. In 1939, with the invasion of Poland, Hitler launched the Second World War and implemented his brutal final solution to what he called the Jewish problem. It was estimated that five to six million Jews, up to two-thirds of all Jews living in Europe before the war, were starved, tortured, used as slave labor, and systematically murdered in Nazi death camps like Auschwitz during the Holocaust. How was Hitler able to get away with such unimaginable atrocities? Truth is that none of it would have been possible without Hitler's propaganda machine. Within weeks of the Nazis taking power, Hitler established the Ministry for Popular Enlightenment and Propaganda to spread (laughs) national socialist ideas. He was very clear about the ministry's purpose. In 1924, Hitler was quoted as saying that propaganda's task is not to make an objective study of the truth insofar as it favors the enemy and then set it before the masses with academic fairness task is to serve our own right, always and unflinchingly. At the head of this all-important ministry was a man named Josef Goebbels. Goebbels was a gifted speaker and a talented propagandist, and he would go on to be the man largely responsible for the German people's favorable opinion of the Nazi regime. The Nazi's propaganda campaigns were so successful because they targeted the weaknesses and aspirations of different classes of Germans. Under Goebbels's direction, the ministry crafted unique messages for different audiences and used. It Suffered after the war, placed the blame for all of Germany's recent troubles on
0: communists and Jews, and claimed that Germany had been stabbed in the back and betrayed by foreign aggressors all the world. Communists.
4: Think about how Diaper Donald calls uh,
0: his enemies communists and communists. fascists
4: to science and entertainment and the ministry used all forms of media to spread their messages and present germany as Remind the defender of western good. culture and and film and theater were all what
0: trump did with um, cambridge analytica and the, the ability to target groups of people and marginalize them
4: to further the Nazi's agenda. Everything from the Nazi's uniforms to the party's strict hierarchy echoed a strong military theme, and appealed to Germans who wanted to regain the country's former glory as a military power. War was glorified as a way for the Germans to avenge themselves against their enemies, and a propaganda campaign rebranded the post-war years as part of a 30 years war, one that started in 1914 with the onset of World War I, and one that wouldn't end until Germany was victorious and restored to its former glory. Painted in this light, the Nazis were able to convince the German public that their enemies were planning to attack them at any moment, and the Nazis were able to claim that the invasion of Poland at the start of World War II was simply an act of self-defense. This militaristic theme was on prominent display during the many rallies held by Hitler. Nazi party rallies were held annually in Nuremberg, to display the power and might of the Nazi regime, and gain popular support for the party. Often lasting for more than a week, thousands of spectators would flood the fairgrounds to attend folk festivals and watch parades of specially selected SS and military troops who best represented the Aryan ideal as they marched through the grounds turning to Hitler, who was situated at the very top of the massive grandstands to recognize him with the signature Nazi salute. The Nazis knew that it wasn't enough to convince the adult Germans to follow them, they had to target the next generation of Germans and turned them into devoted Nazis too. In 1937 Hitler outlawed the Boy Scouts and all other youth groups except for his own version, the Hitler Youth. Under the guise of typical scouting activities like hiking, camping and survival training, the Hitler Youth was a way for the Nazis to remove children from the influence of their parents and indoctrinate them into their anti-semitic ideology. The program was so effective that many children would denounce their parents or even report them for behaving in ways the Nazis considered unacceptable, such as being tolerant towards Jews. The real goal of the Hitler Youth though was to create more soldiers for the German army, and over time the boys branch of the group became more and more militaristic training young boys to march, handle weapons, and prepare for war. The Nazis had complete power over German newspapers and were able to control what news the German people read. They used newspapers like Die Stürmer, the attacker, to further their anti-Semitic agenda, especially in periods prior to the passage of anti-Semitic legislation. Before the 1935 Nuremberg race laws were enacted, the Nazis used newspapers extensively to gain acceptance or at least tolerance of their new racist policies. Under the new laws, anyone with three or four Jewish grandparents, regardless of whether they were practicing Judaism or self-identified with their Jewish roots, were excluded from citizenship, denied political rights, and forbidden from marrying anyone of German blood. Graphic cartoons in Die Stormer portrayed Jews as hideous and frightening subhuman enemies of the German people, obsessed with money, sex, and power. The Nazis were portrayed as simply stepping in to restore order and the German people were encouraged to stand aside and passively accept their horrible treatment of Jews. One of the Nazi's greatest propaganda weapons was the film industry. The Nazis were suspicious at first, since they thought that the film industry was controlled by Jews. But Goebbels saw the opportunity to influence the thoughts and beliefs of the German people through film. He purged the industry of undesirables and offered high-profile positions and unlimited resources to those who were loyal to the Nazi cause. Some films focused on depicting Germans as racially, culturally, and militarily superior.
1: I like I it's mine. The prices
4: well mine. Films focused on depicting Germans as racially, culturally, and militarily superior and glorified the Nazi Party. One of Goebbels' favorite directors was Lini Riefenstahl, and she directed many films for the Nazis, including Triumph of the Will, an aesthetically pleasing film covering the 1934 Nazi Party rally. Other films had a darker theme. The Eternal Jew, directed by Fritz Hippler, demonized the Jewish people as subhuman, wandering cultural parasites who were bent on destroying German culture. In the years leading up to the start of World War II, the Nazis were making little effort to hide their violations of the Versailles Treaty and were being incredibly blatant about their horrific ideas and plans. So why did no one stop them? In short, their propaganda machine was working just as hard outside of Germany as it was within the country. In the days before the Internet, it was much easier for governments to control the narrative and take charge of what outsiders were allowed to see about the inner workings of their country. They took steps to mislead foreign governments into thinking the Nazis were simply making reasonable demands to rebuild their country while downplaying their anti-Semitic rhetoric and increasingly violent treatment of Jews. Just three years before the onset of World War II, Nazi Germany hosted the 1936 Olympic Games, inviting the world into their country in the midst of their remilitarization and anti-Semitism. This event was yet another grand propaganda campaign designed to fool the world and bolster the German people. Though Jewish-German athletes were forbidden to compete in the games, the Nazis toned down their anti-Semitic rhetoric in the papers and radio, and they cleaned up their cities, removing Jews' unwelcome signs and blatantly racist posters. Visiting athletes and delegates were blissfully unaware of the true extent of the Nazis' hatred for the Jews and their increasingly violent treatment of them. Beloved Nazi film director Leni Reifenstahl filmed the entire event for use as pro-German and pro-Nazi propaganda in the months and years to come, showcasing the Nazis as heroic leaders who had turned their country around and had shown the world how superior the German people were. Later, as World War II dragged on, the world finally began hearing whispered rumors of the atrocities being committed in Nazi concentration camps. The propaganda machine once again went to work to quash these reports. The Nazis went so far as to allow the International Red Cross to visit one of these camp ghettos, inviting representatives to tour the Theresienstadt camp in modern Czech Republic. There, Red Cross officials saw a respectable, if crowded, ghetto where Jewish residents were treated benevolently, fed adequately, and put to work under humane conditions. The Nazis even made a film about the camp to reassure the German public that nothing sinister was going on. But it was all lies. In reality, the camp had undergone an extensive beautification campaign prior to the visit, and as soon as filming was over, the cast, aka the prisoners, were rounded up and shipped off to the notorious Auschwitz death camp for extermination. Thankfully, in the end, the Nazis lost World War II, and both Hitler and Goebbels committed suicide in an underground bunker to avoid being held accountable for their crimes. In the aftermath of the war, the reality of the atrocities committed in the Nazi death camps were made known to the world so that, hopefully, we can avoid repeating them. Understanding propaganda is the first line of defense against ever again allowing a brutal and hateful dictator to commit such horrible crimes. It may have been easier to control the message in the 1930s, but the internet age presents its own challenges when it comes to fake news, disinformation, and propaganda. According to Simon Fraser University in Canada, there are some simple steps we can all take to spot propaganda and avoid falling victim to it. In the immediate aftermath of a big news event, the news outlets will always get it wrong. Wait for more information. Don't trust anonymous sources or sources that only cite other news outlets and take the time to compare multiple sources. Pay close attention to the language used by media outlets. For example, the phrase, we are getting reports, could mean anything at all. And finally, some of this is on us. Beware of reflexive sharing. Don't share sensational news on social media based on your first reaction. Do your due diligence before hitting that share button. Following these steps can help to ensure that nothing like Hitler's propaganda machine can be allowed to manufacture outrage, sow hatred, and incite violence ever again. Here is 1936. World War II looms on the horizon. Edward VIII becomes King of England, and 11 months later, abdicates the throne. The very next year, this member of the British royal family meets with a newly appointed German Chancellor, Adolf Hitler. Declassified evidence now suggests that Edward VIII might have been closer to members of the Nazi party than we ever realized. Under the best of circumstances, a duke spending time with Hitler and other Nazi officials is not something the British government would want the world to know about. The fact that a former king and then Duke of Windsor was in communication with Nazis just before World War II would have been devastating. So British and other allied leaders did the only thing they could. They buried the truth. Until now. We know without a doubt that a meeting between Edward VIII and Adolf Hitler occurred on October 22, 1937. But what do they talk about? And was this member of the royal family a Nazi sympathizer? Edward was no longer king when he met with Hitler. Instead, he was the Duke of Windsor. He remained in the public spotlight as a member of the royal family along with his wife, the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson. Although no longer king, Edward still had connections and influence in certain aspects of British society. As World War II was all but inevitable, the leadership of Britain was rightfully nervous that one of the members of the royal family was becoming a little too close to the dictator of Germany. Edward and his American wife, whom he abdicated the throne to marry, were welcomed with open arms by the Fuhrer and his supporters. There was most likely talk within the Nazi party about building a relationship with the Duke. This connection might have served them well down the road. And as more and more evidence is coming to light, it seems that Hitler not only wanted to build a relationship with Edward VIII, but might have had plans of reinstating him as a puppet king of England if Germany defeated Britain in the coming war. Once Edward and Wallace arrived in Germany, the Nazis rolled out the red carpet. They were treated to lavish parties and had dinners with the heads of the Nazi party, including Hermann Göring and Joseph Goebbels. But the highlight of their visit was meeting the Führer himself. Edward and his wife were driven to Adolf Hitler's (laughs) car. i don't know how every family in america hasn't wild. heard of this yet did you see about that new premium tax credit the government this. just but the highlight of their visit was meeting the Führer himself edward and his wife were driven to adolf hitler's country home in the bavarian alps named Berghof. once at the estate the duke and duchess of windsor and nazi leaders posed for pictures then hitler and edward had a meeting in secret where they might discuss the future and what it would hold for each of them there are varying accounts about this meeting. Right. Some say that Edward criticized Hitler's policies. Edward and his wife were driven to Adolf Hitler's country home in the Bavarian Alps, named Berthof. <laughs> Once at the estate, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and Nazi leaders posed for pictures. Then Hitler and Edward had a meeting in secret where they might have discussed the Duke and
0: Duchess of so Windsor meeting.
4: There with are varying Adolf accounts Hitler. about this meeting. Some say that Edward criticized Hitler's policies, while others say he supported them. What was uncovered after the war suggests the latter might have been true. Once everyone had their afternoon tea, Edward and Wallace departed... Once everyone had their afternoon tea, Edward and Wallace departed Berghof and headed back to England. Many accounts suggest they enjoyed themselves and even were in awe of the Fuhrer and the Nazi Party. The couple had been in Germany for close to two weeks when they arrived at each new destination to England. Many accounts suggest they enjoyed themselves and even were in awe of the Fuhrer and the Nazi Party. The couple had been in Germany for close to two weeks when they arrived at each new destination and they were greeted by cheering crowds. Many people greeted Edward himself with a Nazi salute. The unsettling thing was that Edward would often return the salute. Obviously, this was not the type of behavior that the British government would want the Duke of Windsor to be engaging in, but it didn't seem like Edward cared. (laughs) Although the (laughs) (laughs) photo
0: OMG. And are you still there? Okay. Back. Accidentally lost, lost track. Where was Thanks for three oh three, by the way, merry? Everyone Christmas. had their
4: afternoon tea. Edward and Wallace departed Bearhoff and headed back to England. Many accounts suggest they enjoyed themselves and even were in awe of the Fuhrer and the Nazi party. The couple had been in Germany for close to two weeks when they arrived at each new destination and they were greeted by cheering crowds. Many people greeted Edward himself with a Nazi salute. The unsettling thing was that Edward would often return the salute. Obviously, this was not the type of behavior that the British government would want the Duke of Windsor to be engaging in, but it didn't seem like Edward cared. Although the photos and visits with Nazi leaders do not definitively prove that there was a friendship between the Duke of Windsor and Hitler, certain documents recovered at the end of the war might suggest this was the case. But let's start at the beginning, with Edward VIII's childhood. To understand how pro-Nazi the Duke might have been, we need to go back in time. In his youth, Edward VIII was known to be fond of the German language and culture. This, in and of itself, is not completely surprising, since until World War I, the royal family's full last name was Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. This was changed to Windsor, as the original name had clear German origins, which during World War I, the royal family did not want to be associated with. Regardless of how the rest of the royal family felt, Edward was fascinated by his German roots. He was close with his German cousins and enjoyed experiencing their culture. As he grew older, he became a little too bold with his support of what was happening in Germany. Edward was documented saying some pretty unsettling things as the Nazi party came to power. This was long before his meeting with Hitler and Nazi officials. In July 1933, three years before he became the King of England, Edward paid a visit to Kaiser Wilhelm II's grandson, Prince Louis Ferdinand. During their time together, Edward was recorded as saying that it was no business of ours to interfere in Germany's internal affairs, either regarding Jews or anything else. This alone is disturbing as it would appear that Edward was indifferent to the persecution of the Jewish people that was already beginning. However, what he later said was even more disconcerting. During the same visit, Edward VIII was documented as saying, Dictators are very popular these days. We might want one in England before long. You can understand why the leadership of Britain would be wary of this young royal family member, especially when war with Germany was looking more and more like a reality. In 1936, when Edward VIII became king after his father's death, the British government started to panic. Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin ordered MI5 to begin a surveillance campaign to keep tabs on the new king and his relationship with the Nazi party in Germany. Edward's phones were tapped and his Scotland Yard security detail fed information back to MI5 so that if Edward ever decided to throw his full support behind Germany, he could be stopped. Once war broke out, extra surveillance was placed on Edward VIII. The government felt he was a huge liability that needed to be dealt with. It was actually Winston Churchill who took serious action to make sure that the Duke of Windsor did not become more of a problem than he already was. While under surveillance, Edward's telegrams and cables to Nazi party members were recorded and kept classified. Churchill and other members of the British government did not want the world to learn about the Duke's connection with the Nazis for obvious reasons. In fact, Prime Minister Churchill was so concerned about what Edward might do that he asked him to become governor of the Bahamas. This would mean that Edward would be forced to leave Europe. It was 1940 and World War II had begun. Edward did not want to leave Europe, so he reminded Churchill of the status of the army and how he should remain on the continent to help with the war effort. Churchill was not amused and clearly did not trust the Duke. So he sent him a telegram stating that even major generals could be court-martialed. Edward VIII was eventually persuaded, or forced, to agree to Churchill's terms. It is unclear how, but the Nazis found out that Edward was being shipped across the Atlantic. It seems as if they were reluctant to lose their connection to the British royalty. When secret German documents were later found, they contained a plan called Operation Willy. At the time, Edward and his wife were in Nazi-controlled Paris. They fled to Spain and then to Portugal, which was still neutral. However, this did not stop German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop from ordering local Nazi dignitaries to seek out and meet with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. In the documents later recovered by Allied forces, the Nazis had noted that Edward voiced his displeasure with the royal family, the British government, and Winston Churchill. The Nazis may have thought this meant it was time to recruit the Duke as an ally. It seems Edward intended to go to the Bahamas even after meeting with Nazi officials, so Rubentrop fed the Duke of Windsor false information that he was being targeted by British operatives that were planning to assassinate him. The Germans encouraged the royal couple to come back to Spain where the Nazis could protect them, and if they helped with the war effort, Edward (laughs) would be placed on the throne of Britain once again. He would only be a puppet king, but it was one way the Nazis tried to entice the Duke. Although this is Hmm. not the course history took, it's interesting to note that Edward did not inform British authorities of the conversations he had with Nazi officials. Instead, they had to find out about them through classified documents uncovered after the war. This was a little shady on Edward's part. And even once Edward reached the Bahamas, he continued to publicly speak out about his lack of faith in Britain winning the war. So whether Edward VIII was best friends with Hitler or not, he definitely was close enough with members of the Nazi party to be in communication with them even during World War II. But there is another part to the story. It is the reason that this information was held from the public for so long. It isn't a conspiracy theory per se, but the suppression of information around Edward VIII's connections and communications with head Nazi leaders does beg the question, who is responsible for hiding this information for so long and why? Surprisingly, it was not just the British government who wanted to conceal the documents connecting Edward VIII to the Nazis from the world. Churchill was definitely the most vocal (laughs) proponent of suppressing the info but he was not the only one. Churchill pleaded with the French and United States to keep the documents connecting with oh Hitler and the Nazis classified. Eventually, everyone agreed to keep the secret, but decades later, numerous documents were released on the matter. The reasons we know about the connections between Edward VIII and the Nazis is because of the German files found at the end of World War II. One cache of documents discovered at Marburg Castle consisted of around 400 tons of paper. Around 60 of those documents contained what became known as the Windsor File, which included German communications with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Recent documents released in 2017 by the British government contain information on how Churchill tried to suppress the Windsor File. He especially did not want the documents containing the communications between the Duke of Windsor and Nazi officials about Operation Willy to be released to the public. The documents also contained information about how Churchill contacted President Dwight D. Eisenhower, to convince him to keep the windsor file classified for 10 to 20 years we cannot know with absolute certainty if any of the documents in the windsor file were fabricated to be used as propaganda or blackmail against the british royal family but many scholars believe that all the files are genuine and that edward the was closer to hitler and the nazis than the world knew at the time it's also clear that allied leaders such as churchill and eisenhower hid the windsor file from the world perhaps to distance members of the royal family from the duke's connection to nazi germany for nearly four years, Hitler has held an ironclad grip on Europe. To maintain that grip, he's poured a vast wealth of Germany's resources into building the Atlantic Wall, the greatest defensive fortification in history to that point. On June 6, 1944, American and British troops leading the international like contingent Donald. of three nations will smash through that defense in just one single day. Operation Overlord, the greatest amphibious assault in history, starts well before that fateful day, however. The first step in freeing Europe takes place months before the actual attack. The Allies desperately need to mislead the Nazis as to the true location of the invasion so that the German army will move defensive maneuver units out of position. To accomplish this, the British and American intelligence services conducted a carefully orchestrated two-pronged campaign of deception and subterfuge. Operation Fortitude was designed to convince the Germans that the Allies would send an attack into Norway in order to deny Hitler much-needed coal and iron resources. Fortitude South, meanwhile, worked to fool the Germans into believing the Allies' assault in France would come in Patakali, which geographically was the preferable site anyway. For their part, the Germans were confident that they would see through any Allied deception thanks to a large ring of spies and informants operating inside Britain. What the Germans didn't realize was that the British had thoroughly penetrated the network, and most importantly, the head of it, a Spaniard by the name of Juan Pujol Garcia, was actually working as a double agent. Garcia carefully worked to convince the Germans that the Allies were indeed planning on assaulting Padecala. Juan Pujol Garcia's deception would save tens of thousands of Allied lives. The Germans moved large amounts of manpower and equipment to Poticali and to Norway, where coastal fortifications are tripled. In charge of the coastal defenses is the infamous Field Marshal Rommel, whom, despite his defeat in Africa, is still one of Hitler's most respected generals. However, Rommel and General Leo Ger von Schweppenberg, commander of Panzer Group West, are at odds over how to deploy the critical German armored reserves. Rommel believes the tank should be kept as close to the beaches as possible in order to crush an Allied landing on site. Schweppenberg instead believes that the tanks should be kept around Paris and dispatched only when the main Allied beachhead was officially identified. With overwhelming Allied air superiority, Rommel believes this to be a critical mistake, as tanks and infantry will not be able to easily move long distances once the fighting starts. In the end, Hitler makes a fateful decision. He grants Rommel command over three tank divisions and another three are left under Schweppenberg. Hitler will himself command the remaining four divisions making up the strategic reserve. Without realizing it, Hitler has just made one of the greatest strategic blunders in military history. At zero hundred hours on June 6th, Operation Overlord begins. An air armada of twelve hundred transports and towed gliders fly low over the waters of the English Channel to avoid detection before pulling up for altitude. A few miles behind the coastal defenses, thousands of paratroopers jump from their planes. Others are brought in to rough landings on gliders. The Germans have identified places gliders could be used for a landing, though, and have booby trapped them thoroughly with giant bits of metal meant to tear gliders apart on landing. Many gliders are shredded on impact, sending men tumbling across landing fields. Those that manage to land safely face minefields and razor wire booby traps. The men in the gliders may have been the lucky ones, however, as the paratroopers are faring much worse. American pilots, inexperienced in paradrops and nervous from German anti-aircraft fire, don't slow their planes down enough for a safe drop. As men leap out of the plane, they're buffeted by the incredible wind. Many have equipment torn from their bodies. Some land behind enemy lines with nothing more than a knife or sidearm. Yet, despite the difficulties and German defense, I am a child of war I was taught that love is weakness. Fences shortly after landing, British paratroopers capture the first critical objective: a bridge over the Kong Canal. Now they and thousands of Allied paratroopers must hold their positions for six hours with no hope of reinforcements. They're alone and behind enemy lines, fully aware that an entire division of German tanks is nearby and having little more than a few handheld anti-tank weapons to defend themselves with. The paratrooper assault manages to cut off German supply and reinforcement routes, but more importantly, the paratroopers will ensure that the landing forces have secure and quick routes out of the beaches once the coastal defenses are neutralized. If they're not dislodged, the German plan to bottle up the allies on the beaches will fail, and yet no major assault against the paratroopers is ordered. Just a few miles from American positions, an entire division of German troops have started their tanks and sit, waiting for the order to attack. The order, however, never comes as aides back in Berlin are too scared to wake Hitler up in the middle of the night. This will prove disastrous for the Germans. At 6 a.m., a flotilla of landing ships makes their way to the shore. The German positions have been thoroughly pounded by preparatory naval and aerial bombardment, delivering untold devastation to the German positions. However, in some sectors, such as Omaha Beach, the aerial bombardment has largely missed its intended targets. Omaha Beach will soon become the bloodiest front in the battle to take Europe. The weather is not optimal for a landing, With high winds and rough seas working against the invasion force, this same weather has granted the Allies the element of surprise, yet proves to be a formidable foe in itself. Allied landing craft struggle against the currents and waves, with many forced hundreds of meters off course. At Gold Beach, the aerial attack has failed to neutralize one of the main German defensive positions, leaving infantry assaulting the beach exposed to withering machine gun and cannon fire. Some landing craft see only a single survivor out of 30 men assigned. At Sword Beach, specially built amphibious tanks proved to be lifesavers for the men on the beach, their heavy firepower silencing enemy fortifications. The infantry is able to break out of the beach relatively quickly, though a lack of armor support forces them to limit their advance into enemy lines until more tanks can be safely offloaded. Located in between the American beaches of Utah and Omaha, pointe Hoc is a hilltop fortified position that must be neutralized before the Americans can move on their beaches. This requires a steep climb up a cliff 100 feet high, all while under withering enemy fire from above. The task falls to the 2nd Ranger Battalion, and against all odds, the men manage to climb up the cliffs and reach the top, only to discover that the enemy guns they were sent to destroy have already been moved. Knowing the devastation they would cause if left intact, the American Rangers frantically searched the countryside, discovering the guns and finally silencing them. Out of 200 men that scaled the cliffs, only 90 were combat capable by the end of the day. Yet, by succeeding in their objective, the Rangers have saved countless American lives. At Utah Beach, the men are pushed off course by the strong current, but managed to come ashore in one piece. This stretch of beach is being guarded mostly by Eastern European conscripts who have little will to fight for Hitler. The veteran battle-hardened Germans who would normally be in these positions have been moved to Patakali, nearly 100 miles away. Suffering fewer than 200 casualties, the Americans at Utah Beach capture many of the surrendering Eastern European conscripts. The story couldn't be more different for the troops assaulting Omaha Beach, the bloodiest front on D-Day. Omaha holds the strongest fortifications, and while the Allies expected only a single regiment to be defending the sector, the Axis has moved an entire division there. To complicate matters even further, strong currents either delay the landing craft or push them far off course, completely eliminating the element of surprise. As the ramps of the first landing craft drop into the water, a storm of bullets meets the infantry trying desperately to disembark. Many men drown before even getting to the beach, weighed down by their heavy equipment. The tide has begun to come in faster than expected, and in large stretches of the beach, huge deep lagoons await the men a few dozen meters from the shoreline. The troops here must cross these, and a further three to four hundred meters of barren beach, giving the German machine gunners a perfectly unobstructed field of fire from the cliffs above. The casualties are horrendous, and it becomes clear that if something is not done immediately, Omaha Beach and all the men on it will be lost. Out at sea, American destroyers are desperately trying to assist the infantry on Omaha, but thick clouds of smoke make it completely impossible to fire accurately. The German fortifications are so well built that if even a shell finds its target, the thick concrete roof will render it almost completely ineffective. One destroyer captain makes a fateful decision. He orders his ship to head closer to the beach. You'll get close enough to see through the smoke and be able to target the German bunkers. The action threatens to force the ship aground in the dangerously shallow waters, but at last the destroyer is able to see through the thick smoke. Leveling its guns, the destroyer unleashes a devastating volley onto a German fortification, striking it head on rather than top down. Moments later, all that's left is a smoking ruin. Following suit, other destroyers risk running themselves aground and steam in close to the beach in order to support the infantry. The move turns out to be a lifesaver for the men on the beach, and many of the German positions are silenced. As the Allied troops begin to break out of the beachheads, the expected German counterattack never comes. Hitler has been so convinced that the real Allied assault will come in Padicali that he refuses to allow most of the mobile reserves to be committed to the fight. This seals Germany's fate. As after three days of fierce fighting, nearly 200,000 Allied troops have now penetrated Hitler's impenetrable fortress Europe. For his part, Hitler remains so convinced that the assault on Normandy is a feint that he keeps the majority of his reserves around Patakali for a whopping seven weeks. As the Allies witnessed the true scope of the devastation created by the Nazi regime, shock spread around the world, millions dead, multiple countries in ruins, and a war that spread around the world. How could this have been allowed to happen? Why didn't more German citizens stand up to the Nazi regime? Well, for one thing, it comes back to one of the most famous analogies in history. The frog and hot water. If you dump a frog in a pot of hot water, he'll jump out. But if you put the frog in cold water, it...
0: And heat it up. He'll get boiled.
4: Water and slowly heat it up, he'll take a nice warm bath. And the next thing you know, you've got frog soup. The Nazis didn't take power immediately and start herding people into the death camps. They built their power slowly and built a network of support and propaganda that made it difficult for people to see just how badly things were going. To make matters worse, they didn't even take power through normal means. The Nazis didn't win an election outright to take power, and their early years were messy. Hitler originally started as a crackpot far-right activist who joined the German Workers' Party. These early years, just after World War I, were characterized by violence, and Hitler was even sent to prison briefly for attempting a coup in the famous Beer Hall Pooch. He got a relatively light sentence, with many of the people in power viewing him as a harmless nut, not wanting to give him more attention. Needless to say, that didn't go well. He spent that time in prison writing Mein Kampf and rededicated himself to gaining power through legal means. And he found a population that was ripe for filling with popular rage. Why was Germany at the time so angry? The Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, was massively skewed to punish Germany for its role in starting the war. It left Germany in dire economic straits. But the people had no way to take their anger out on the powers responsible. That led many people to seek convenient scapegoats, and Hitler was more than willing to provide them. And that led to one of the most successful ways Hitler minimized opposition. Propaganda. Even before Hitler took power he was working to increase anti-semitism and populist rage in Germany and to paint himself as the only solution. Mein Kampf was full of commentary on how effective propaganda is and when he came out of prison Hitler went about winning the hearts and minds of Germany. He established a daily newspaper in 1925, picked the notorious Joseph Goebbels as his head of party propaganda and led protests designed to rouse the German patriotic spirit. He even succeeded in getting the Claimed anti-war film All Quiet on the Western Front banned. But with all things Hitler, there was an even darker edge. Much of the Nazi propaganda was designed to make the citizen see Jewish people as less than human. The notorious paper Der Stürmer, run by anti-Semite Julius Streicher, was known for its extreme caricatures and calls for violence. The propaganda film Judge Süss was a massive success in Germany, and its portrayal of a historical Jewish figure as a sinister figure infiltrating a European court led German citizens to mistrust their own Jewish neighbors. The propaganda was so extreme that people involved in the movie were put on trial after the war, and Stryker became one of the only non-party figures executed at Nuremberg. And Hitler never let an opportunity go to waste. One of the biggest parts of propaganda is taking advantage of opportunities, or making them. The true story of the Reichstag fire is still not 100% known, but many modern historians believe it to be a false flag created by the regime. Hitler had been made Chancellor of Germany, but the Nazis didn't yet have complete control of the government in 1933 when the landmark went up in flames. Hitler quickly blamed a Dutch communist activist and used it to push the idea that Germany was on the verge of being taken over by a communist revolution like Russia was. He panicked the public, convinced the president to suspend civil liberties, and gained a majority in the next election. At which point he began purging the opposition. And once he had absolute power, resistance was only going to get harder. One of the most important elements of Nazi propaganda was to get them while they are young. Children would be indoctrinated early and parents who opposed the Nazi regime would find they might have enemies within their own homes. The instrument for this was the Hitler Youth, a massive network of training camps and indoctrination programs that essentially worked as the summer camp from hell. Boys attended summits, participated in patriotic activities, learned valuable life skills, and were told all about how their many, many enemies would have to be dealt with. And when they say, get them young, they mean it. The Hitler Youth proper was for boys aged 14 to 18, and often had a paramilitary overtone as the boys were prepared for their role in the German military. But for younger boys there were the German youngsters in the Hitler Youth Program, immortalized in the Taika Waititi movie Jojo Rabbit. It was heavily patterned after the boy scouts, and the young boys were trained to report on their neighbors and spy on other gatherings like church youth groups. Hitler believed that the children were Germany's future, and he made sure that the future liked to goose step. All this worked together to create a climate of fear. Many people, especially in the early days of the Nazi regime, might have disagreed with some of the more extreme elements of Hitler's platform. Even those who voted for the Nazis might have been shocked by how quickly he moved to tighten his grip on Germany. But who were they going to talk to that about? Most anti-Nazi political organizations were outlawed, kids were indoctrinated into Nazism at an early age, and no one knew if their neighbor they talked to was actually a Nazi diehard who would report them to the authorities. For many people, the fear of the consequences of speaking up was enough to keep them silent, and the reach of Nazism didn't limit itself to Germany. Many anti-Nazi activists, including the Jews who were worried about their future in the country, reached out to their friends around the world seeking support. But two could play at that game, and the Nazis were willing to play dirtier. In the 1930s, a pro Nazi organization called the German American Bund was established in the United States to promote an alliance with Nazi Germany. They held massive anti Semitic rallies in New York City, making many prominent politicians and journalists hesitant to speak out against the Nazis. But one major element was about to make opposition to Nazism much harder. For the first six years of the regime, Hitler concentrated on the internal affairs and built a powerful network. The governments of Europe, hoping to avoid war, ceded territory to him to pacify his aggression. It didn't work, and in 1939 he invaded Poland. World War II was on, and with it, opposing the Nazis was about to become even trickier. When a country goes to war, the rally round the flag effect kicks in. This causes the leader's approval rating to skyrocket, and often makes anyone opposed to the leader fall out of favor. And in this case it didn't matter that the leader started the war. Things move fast in war, and soon Germany was involved in the conflict on multiple fronts. Not only did they conquer Poland, but the pro-Nazi government of Austria quickly surrendered and was integrated into the Nazi regime. France was the next big front, as well as the growing air war with Britain. Not only was there intense pressure to support the war effort, but with the rate of the country's territory growing, it became harder to argue that the regime wasn't a success. And for many on the ground, that was all that mattered.
6: Tommy is giving away free gifts.
4: many men weren't there to argue at all. It's one of the biggest factors in a society during the war, conscription. The military draft in Germany had been reinstated in 1935 as Hitler built up the military in advance of the war, and his war machine was training 300,000 conscripts a year. That took many men away from their homes and left them facing military justice if they crossed their commanders. As for those left behind, the women were often forced into the workforce and were the sole providers for their families while their husbands were at war. If you don't want people to resist your regime, make it for them to have time or security. And for those who did stand up, harsh treatment awaited. Hitler wasn't able to put down all resistance to his regime, but those who were caught in the act often faced a court system stacked against them. The Nazi courts were notorious for their bias in favor of the regime. This was at its worst when dealing with cases involving Jewish people, such as the infamous riots of Kristallnacht. It was near impossible for enemies to the regime to get justice in courts, and those who were hauled into court often faced swift deportation to a prison camp or worse. That was the fate of journalists. Fritz Gerlach, who had advocated against Hitler in the years before he took power. Gerlach was swiftly declared an enemy of the state, arrested less than two months after Hitler took power, and murdered during the Night of Long Knives when Hitler purged his enemies. But that didn't stop those who refused to bow down, no matter how dangerous it became. During the early 1940s a growing anti-Nazi youth movement began in Munich. This gang of intellectuals would become known as the White Rose Movement and their tactics were peaceful. They launched a campaign of leaflets and graffiti to raise awareness of the brutality of the Nazis and call for peaceful resistance. They were led by the Scholl siblings, Sophie and Hans, and their friend Alexander Schmorl. They operated for seven months until the Gestapo arrested the ringleaders. So what was the punishment for minor vandalism in Nazi Germany? The Scholl siblings and many of their allies were placed on trial, but the Nazi people's court was not a place for justice. They weren't allowed to speak in their defense, although that didn't stop Sophie from frequently interrupting the judge. They were convicted in only days and were quickly sent to the guillotine and executed. This had a chilling effect on all the opposition in Nazi Germany, as they knew that even the most peaceful opposition to the regime could earn you a public execution. Many of the resistance in Germany was highly under the radar, and one mistake could get you killed. It often took the form of providing goods to Jewish residents who were banned from participation in public life, and later hiding them from deportation forces that took them to the ghettos and later to the death camps. Houses around Nazi Germany and the nations it occupied became secret hiding places, with refugees staying in attics and basements, often for years. For those who were lucky enough to escape detection. But these saviors weren't always what you'd expect. There are some reports from the time of the Holocaust of people who hid Jews in their homes, despite being loyal members of the Nazi party and even publicly anti-Semitic. Many of them might have been putting on an acceptable public face to avoid suspicion. Many may have even been Nazis originally but couldn't stomach the switch from bigotry to open genocide of their neighbors. Whatever the reasons, these righteous genteels often survived by hiding their opposition to the regime, and those who were found out often found themselves on the next train to the camps. Along alongside those they tried to help. There was resistance, but it often took a certain advantage or privilege. After Hitler consolidated power, open opposition to the regime was usually a one-way ticket to imprisonment or death. For the people on the ground, the only way to help was usually under the cover of darkness. But other more powerful figures took advantage of their position. Jiyune Sugihara, a Japanese diplomat, was able to print visas for hundreds of Jewish people to come to Japan and escape Nazi persecution. Industrialist Oskar Schindler arranged for Jewish prisoners to work in his factories as slave labor thus sparing them from the gas chambers. The opposition to Nazism was running uphill from the start, as Hitler had the power of propaganda and anger on his side. It then became a hopeless fight when he turned the law, military, and the courts in his favor. For many of the regime's opponents it became a battle to survive the era, and most were scared out of playing an active role in the resistance. Ultimately, it would take the entire Allied forces to bring Hitler's rule to a much deserved end. The Channel Islands, a picturesque group of rocky isles between Great Britain and France. For the residents of these islands, life is usually sleepy, making them a popular vacation destination. But in 1940, they would be anything but calm and relaxing, because Nazi Germany had conquered France and the United Kingdom was next in their sights, and the Channel Islands were in the way. The small population and lack of military hardware meant defending the islands would be impossible and the UK had no resources to spare in the middle of the war. They quickly demilitarized the island and evacuated as many civilians as they could while the German forces bore down. While a significant percentage left, the majority of the major islands of Jersey and Guernsey chose to stay and face an indefinite Nazi occupation. But Adolf Hitler had bigger plans for the island then a new source of slave labor. The Wehrmacht took over the Channel Islands on June 30th, 1940, and were quickly unimpressed by the island's defenses. The islands weren't a common staging ground for war, and the Nazis weren't expecting to spend much time there. They planned to quickly move on to conquering the United Kingdom mainland, but Hitler's ambition got the better of him. Britain didn't go down to air nearly as easily as they expected, and rising tensions with Russia meant Hitler was more worried about the war on the Eastern Front than proceeding to London. And suddenly, the Channel Islands looked a lot more significant. After looking at maps of the islands, Hitler called additional forces to the small outposts. He announced a massive construction project that would take the Channel Islands from a footnote in the war to one of the Nazi regime's most fortified outposts. The organization taught, Hitler's civilian infrastructure organization was brought to the islands with the mission of providing labor and building over 200 military facilities, bunkers and casemates on each of the larger islands. They would need a lot of manpower. And Hitler of course had a favorite way of getting manpower. While the Channel Islands occupation hadn't initially been as brutal as the occupation of France and other nations Hitler conquered, save for the Jews of the islands who were quickly deported, that would soon change. Hitler needed labor and the remaining citizens of the islands would be conscripted. As the islands weren't seen as a priority initially and were being blockaded by the allies for much of the war, resources were slim and conditions would get worse over the course of the war. While there was some resistance on the islands, the residents were so outnumbered by armed occupiers that they never had much of a chance. And soon the Channel Islands would be completely transformed. The Nazis used this system called the Riegelbau or standard build to mass-produce bunkers that could withstand enemy attacks. Built from over 200 standardized armor parts, they could be assembled much faster than other constructs after being built in German factories, almost like the world's largest Lego set, if they could withstand aerial assaults. There were three primary types of designs, temporary ones in the field made out of timber and soil with a concrete ceiling, reinforced models with a meter-strong concrete ceiling, and permanent facilities with two meter thick concrete ceilings and walls. Hitler approved the plan and one of the biggest construction projects in World War II history began. Soon the Channel Islands were met with a throng of workers coming in to begin construction. Some were civilian workers and military members in non-combat positions, but many were taken from the Nazi labor camps around Europe and from military detainees along with the native Channel Island populations. Supplies were brought in, particularly cement, steel, and timber, and work camps were built to keep the workforce in a centralized location and to keep them from escaping. By the end of 1942, the Channel Islands had become a massive military fortress. Sites would be excavated using manual labor, often using explosives to speed things up. As soon as this was done, the construction experts would come in and direct the labor, carefully assembling sites according to the exact specifications of the plans. There were several types of facilities, each designed for a specific purpose and to make it near impossible for any allied forces to dislodge the Nazi occupation. The first line of defense, artillery. For those visiting the Channel Islands today, one of the most impressive landmarks is the Battery Mirus, a massive artillery position. With massive range-finding towers and four barrels, its powerful guns could shoot a stunning 32 miles with lightweight shells or almost 20 miles with heavy anti-armor shells making them able to gun down enemy forces long before they could set foot on the island. The powerhouse artillery position would be joined by 10 coastal artillery batteries on Guernsey alone, surrounded by bunkers that would contain spare ammunition. But they were prepared for dangers coming from all directions, including above. The islands were also filled with longer range guns designed for taking out aircraft, with some able to shoot as far as 7,500 meters. Six island anti-aircraft batteries were set up, equipped with radar and searchlights. The Nazis wanted a clear line of sight and fire, so they looked for wide open locations, including a converted golf course. The radars and command bunkers for the anti-aircraft barriers were fortified, with around 175 total positions. And just in case anyone got through, the island had been littered with explosive rigged obstacles to get planes when they landed. But if any enemy forces got through, the Nazis were prepared. If the Allies got to the beach, they would be met by countless casemates designed for close range assaults, While the small bunkers would be hard to penetrate, any soldiers approaching them would be met with multiple soldiers worth of heavy fire. The machine guns within were equipped with searchlights for nighttime fire, but the fences were just as strong as the offensive posts. Barbed wire and minefields made it dangerous to cross the islands. Trenches made it hazardous and harder to navigate. These would usually lead to heavy fire zones, funneling the invading soldiers right into the line of fire. The twelve strong point areas around Guernsey protected most of the critical points, with resistance nests around the island providing simpler defenses. But the strongest island defenses might have been hidden from sight. To the untrained eye, much of Guernsey would seem to be unspoiled green, but this was often camouflage, with paint and straw being used to resemble grass and natural stones being built into concrete and under many of these camouflaged positions would be a massive network of tunnels that spanned much of the islands. Built over two years, 14 full tunnels were completed, while others were started but never finished. They would allow Nazi personnel and their workers to navigate from one position to another, away from enemy eyes. And for the most important facilities on the island, secrecy was key. Leadership and technical support were housed in underground bunkers, as well as the infrastructure that was needed to keep the massive Nazi war machine on the island running. Radar units were the top target for Allied bombers, and were usually disguised with the crew working in underground bunkers. While the transformation of the Channel Islands was very visible, much of its most powerful tools were hidden. The Channel Islands mega fortress designed by Adolf Hitler seemed indestructible, but there was one thing they hadn't counted on. As the years went on, resistance to the occupation grew and Nazi oppression increased. Resisters were sent abroad to Nazi prisons, with some dying. The British government made several attempts to liberate the islands, but raids had to be called off due to heavy fire, weather conditions, or resources being needed elsewhere. In 1944, the Allied forces launched the D-Day landings and liberated Normandy, but decided to pass by the Channel Islands because it would take far more resources than they had to take on the German fortifications. But it had other consequences. Almost all the Channel Islands food supplies went through Nazi-occupied France, and that pipeline had just been cut off. The Channel Islands were starving. Negotiations began for the Channel Islands' fate, with the Germans initially making an offer to the British to release all civilians besides military-age men. Winston Churchill was unimpressed, telling them, let them starve, they can rot at their leisure. The tide of the war was turning, and the Allies only wanted one thing, unconditional surrender. The Germans refused to discuss it, and it would be several long months in December of 1944 until a Red Cross ship was finally able to bring food and medical supplies. But the end was only months away. May 8, 1945 saw the Germans surrender, and only days later Allied forces arrived across the Channel Islands, and the German soldiers laid down their weapons. And slowly but surely, the population that fled the occupied islands began to return, and were shocked at how their little islands had been transformed. The Nazi forces were gone, but the islands were still dotted with their massive military infrastructure. And in the years to come, it would define the islands in some unique ways. What was the ultimate purpose of Hitler's island megafortress? The Germans put an enormous amount of effort into defending a small group of islands, but it amounted to very little. They were able to hold the islands, but never mounted any successful attacks on Britain from there. They were never conquered but nearly starved to death as soon as they were cut off. Was it just another elaborate project of the madman who met his end inside a German bunker or was it intended as something else? Some suspect it may have been a place Hitler planned to hide if he got out of Germany in time. A group of Channel Island residents were determined to answer these questions. It was 1961 when the Channel Islands Occupation Society was formed. A group of volunteers dedicated to investigating and managing the history of the German occupation they took over management of many of the German sites from the British military and published an annual newsletter sharing stories from the era. Based in both Jersey and Guernsey, they are most people's entry point to this little-known part of World War II history. But they're not the only way to learn about it. Today, one of the Channel Islands biggest industries is tourism. The islands are open to visitors and most of the most famous Nazi bunkers have been cleaned out of anything dangerous and are open to tourists. Historian Dan Snow put out a documentary as he traveled the length of Guernsey, visiting Hitler's island fortress and sharing tales of the Second World War. The German occupation museum stands in Lehuart, offering a look into artifacts and communications from the occupation era. His whole trip consisted of a six-day itinerary, much of which can be covered by daring visitors. But not all the secrets of the Nazi occupation have yet been uncovered. It was early 2020 when Snow's documentary crew explored a bunker that had only recently been uncovered and renovated. It was even filled with the original bunks for the soldiers stationed there, and the walls were painted with murals from the men who lived underground. There were places reserved for pictures of high-ranking German officials, including Hitler himself. Even today, over 70 years since the war, Hitler's island mega fortress continues to give up its secrets. While the occupation lasted only five years, the fortress was built to last, and historians of the war will likely be making new discoveries for decades to come. History remembers Hitler for many things. A failed artist, his love for German shepherds, being a Nazi dickhead. Yeah, it's mostly the Nazi dickhead thing. But one thing you might be surprised to learn about Hitler is that he was actually one of the wealthiest men of his time. And no, not just because of all that stolen Nazi gold and loot gathered from all across Europe, but because of his own shrewd business skills. Young Hitler lived a bohemian lifestyle before it was cool, making him the ultimate mass-murdering hipster. He rented a small apartment in Vienna with a friend and struggled to get by by selling small paintings and postcards to tourists. After being rejected from art school twice, Hitler was soon out on the street, (laughs) all of his funds having run out. After World War I, Hitler had become involved in German politics, and famously took part in the failed Beer Hall Putsch of 1923. As a result, he was sentenced to prison for five years, and to help pay off his legal fees, he dictated what would become Mein Kampf (laughs) to two of his cellmates. Hitler imagined that the book would be popular free. He rented a store from all across Europe, but because of his own shrewd business skills, young Hitler lived a bohemian lifestyle young before his school, making him the ultimate mass-murdering <laughs> hipster. He rented a small apartment in Vienna with a friend and struggled to get by by selling small paintings and postcards to tourists. Struggle. After uh, being he rejected struggle? from art school twice, Hitler was soon out on the street, all of his funds having run out. After World War One, Hitler had become involved in German politics, and famous...
0: Hey there, welcome back. Thanks for 303K. We're listening to Real Reason Hitler, Lost World War II, another Hitler stories compilation posted one day ago. I'm going to share this right now.
4: Covering this right now on my... um. how Diaper Donald mimics his idol, comma, Hitler.
0: Politics AF. uh uh-huh. This should be a...
4: Hashtag new national curriculum.
0: Okay, hey, how he, he mimics his idol. Years,
4: and to help pay off his legal.
0: Said so, this should be part of the new national curriculum. If you want to see my other suggestions, a hashtag new national curriculum.
4: legal fees. He dictated
0: what would become mine comp to two of his cellmates. He'll- Put, hold on, back up. See, he wants to go to jail. He's pushing us, okay. he's pushing the justice to the system, shop. send him to jail because his idol went cancel. to jail too.
4: The start of this place. He don't care. That the book yeah. would be he knows it'll the just make all him all more popular. Or that's what he says to himself. That's the, the con. Hall, of
0: okay, well then we're going to back up a little bit.
4: for decades to come. History remembers Hitler for many things. A failed artist his love for german shepherds being a nazi dickhead yeah it's mostly the nazi dickhead thing but one thing you might be surprised to learn about hitler is that he was actually one of the wealthiest men of his time and no not just because of all that stolen nazi gold and loot gathered from all across europe but because of his own shrewd business skills. Young Hitler lived a bohemian lifestyle before it was cool, making him the ultimate mass-murdering hipster. He rented a small apartment in Vienna with a friend and struggled to get by by selling small paintings and postcards to tourists. After being rejected from art school twice, Hitler was soon after all of his funds having run out. This is a a frustrated artist. He famously took part in the failed Beer Hall Putsch of 1923. As a result, he was sentenced to prison for five years. And to help pay off his legal fees, he dictated what would become Mein Kampf to two of his cellmates to pay off his legal the fees popular amongst the dictated Socialist a party book and had no good dreams of making it as a writer only needed was a few thousand people to buy the book so that he could pay off his legal fees and in 1925, the first year of its publication Mein comp sold 9,000 dollars wow, copies.
0: I didn't know While that he wrote Mein comp to pay for his legal fees, so no his
4: legal fees. Mm. However, doesn't that sound like old diaper Donald his, his little an more and more party members and even some team members of the public want to know what this mustachioed young man was all about, and copies of my comp slowly began to increase in sales. By 1930, Mein Kampf had managed to sell 55,000 copies in a single year. And by this time, Hitler was receiving decent, if not impressive, royalty checks from his publisher. Once Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, though, book sales of Mein Kampf exploded. And in 1933, the year he took power, sales skyrocketed to over 850,000. Needless to say, Hitler was now pulling in rather large royalty checks, thanks to his massive personality cult and the fact that he ruled Germany unchecked. Hitler decided that the best way to boost sales of his book even further was to have the government itself buy copies. Therefore, the Nazi government immediately bought six million copies of his book and copies were being provided to soldiers and government workers alike. Even married couples received a free copy on their wedding day, as <laughs> a very weird congratulatory present from the Nazi government. But Six million that is popular. The world at large grew curious about the Nazi author. Internationally, Hitler earned royalties on the sale of his book up until 1939, when he was declared an enemy of the Allies and had all international royalties cut off. Granted, he was never earning nearly as much internationally as domestically, but he was still pulling in $560,000 in royalties from sales in Britain and about $50,000 in royalties from sales in the US. During the war, his book would continue to sell in the US, though the US government seized control of publishing royalties by invoking the treaty with the enemy act and ended up giving $260,000 in royalties to war refugee charities. While Hitler was trying to kill people, ironically his book was helping those same people. At its height, Hitler was earning about $13.5 million a year from book sales in today's dollars, which would be far more impressive if he wasn't basically forcing the Nazi government to simply buy his book. All those sales though had accumulated to a $10 million tax bill, which Hitler simply ordered one of his ministers to forgive. We gotta admit, sometimes it pays to be on top. In total, Hitler would earn a whopping $170 million in today's dollars just by selling copies of Mein Kampf. All this money was used to buy several very expensive properties around Germany, though Hitler also used a great deal of his own personal fortune to fund the Nazi party. He even made one of his homes, the Berkhal, into the main headquarters of the Nazi party. Sadly, when the British tried to bomb it back to the stone age, their bombs largely missed and only managed to slightly damage it. Hitler, however, used his political power to enrich himself with one more other cunning ploy. He licensed his image to the German government and then ordered that it be used basically everywhere. From posters to stamps to the covers of propaganda magazines and books, Hitler's face was everywhere all across the German nation. And every time his face was printed on anything, Hitler got a cut thanks to licensing fees. Given that Hitler was the one ordering the creation of all this propaganda material, we once more have to admit that this is a pretty pro-super-villain move. Taking over a country and ruling it like a dictator is one thing, but selling your image to your own government and then forcing it to print it everywhere is on a (laughs) whole other level of villainy then of course there is all the untold stolen wealth of Europe that the Nazis quote liberated as they invaded nations. By the end of the war the Nazis had stolen a whopping 21 billion dollars in gold and it was this stolen gold that helped entirely fund the German war machine for 5 whole years. As supreme ruler of Germany whatever the state owned was basically Hitler's personal wealth as well. So the allies made sure that he spent every stolen cent on the war effort lest his forces be defeated sooner than they eventually were. Still with the largest gold reserves in the world for a short while, Hitler was likely one of history's richest rulers, if only briefly. Today, Mein Kampf continues to sell copies. Fiscal copies of the book are, understandably, very rare, as most people don't want to be caught in public reading Mein Kampf. (laughs) Yet, thanks to digital readers like Kindle, digital sales of Mein Kampf have exploded around the world. Part of this is due to sheer curiosity, and in some parts of the world who have learned very little about Hitler and his role in World War II, Mein Kampf, and anything Hitler-related, is actually seen as trendy, hip, and cool. This is especially true in Southeast Asia, with Thailand in love with anything Hitler-related. Again, this is mostly due to the fact Look that Thai here. citizens learned very little about Hitler's role in World War II, and for them, he's apparently nothing more than a snazzy dresser with a funny mustache. A rise in anti-Semitism and nationalism, however, has also seen sales of Mein Kampf increase in the last few years, and that's rather unfortunate for the rest of us non-Nazi dickheads. Ironically, though, because no publisher wants to be associated with Hitler and his book, or seen as enriching themselves from Nazi trash, the vast majority of all money made from the sales of the book are funneled straight into various charities. So while white supremacists are buying up Mein Kampf and hating on Jews and other minorities, they're actually helping fund a ton of charities that help those groups of people and others out.
1: Thanks,
4: idiots. After Hitler's (laughs) death, what remained of his wealth and ongoing royalties from Mein Kampf went to one of Hitler's surviving cousins, who flatly refused them and did not wish to be associated with one of history's greatest villains. Instead, those funds were channeled to various charities and post-war reconstruction efforts. The same goes for sales of his early artwork, with no dealers wanting to be associated with Hitler, and sales largely taking place between private sellers and collectors.
2: That's you know
3: really interesting. sick. Thinking bitrex. I never show me the the hard work. work. Me, say, my kids I don't keep them. Americans <laughs> everywhere assuring
4: the savings. Oh, thank you guys. Show collectors. In the end, Hitler may have been one of the most Like, uh, ever
0: what's ever his lit, face? What's his face? Um Oh man, the one that gave Clarence Thomas millions in luxury yacht, vacations and super yachts uh yeah that guy um he's a nazi memorabilia collector um what is not Warren hatch something uh oh, shoot dylan crawl uh <laughs> dylan crawl Ro- yeah anyway that dude
4: He would end up defeating himself as his wealth continues to this day to be used for causes that would likely make him turn over in his grave. Stefan Novak's heart beats rapidly in his chest as he approaches the Nazi checkpoint. As his wealth continues... The Channel Islands, a picturesque group of rocky isles between Great Britain and France. For the residents of these islands, life is usually sleepy, making them a popular vacation destination. But in 1940, they would be anything but calm and relaxing because Nazi Germany had conquered France and the United Kingdom was next in their sights and the Channel Islands were in the way. The small population and lack of military hardware meant defending the islands would be impossible and the UK had no resources to spare in the middle of the war. They quickly demilitarized the island and evacuated as many civilians as they could while the German forces bore down. While a significant percentage left, the majority of the major islands of Jersey and Guernsey chose to stay and face an indefinite Nazi occupation. But Adolf Hitler had bigger plans for the island than a new source of slave labor. The Wehrmacht took over the Channel Islands on June 30th, 1940 and were quickly unimpressed by the island's defenses. The islands weren't a common staging ground for war and the Nazis weren't expecting to spend much time there. They planned to quickly move on to conquering the United Kingdom mainland but Hitler's ambition got the better of him. Britain didn't go down to air assault nearly as easily as they expected, and rising tensions with Russia meant Hitler was more worried about the war on the Eastern Front than proceeding to London. And suddenly, the Channel Islands looked a lot more significant. After looking at maps of the islands, Hitler called additional forces to the small outposts. He announced a massive construction project that would take the Channel Islands from a footnote in the war to one of the Nazi regime's most fortified outposts. The organization taught, Hitler's civilian infrastructure organization, was brought to the islands with the mission of providing labor and building over 200 military facilities, bunkers, and casemates on each of the larger islands. They would need a lot of manpower. And Hitler, of course, had a favorite way of getting manpower. While the Channel Islands occupation hadn't initially been as brutal as the occupation of France and other nations Hitler conquered, save for the Jews of the islands who were quickly deported, that would soon change. Hitler needed labor, and the remaining citizens of the islands would be conscripted. As the islands weren't seen as a priority initially, and were being blockaded by the Allies for much of the war, resources were slim, and conditions would get worse over the course of the war. While there was some resistance on the islands, the residents were so outnumbered by armed occupiers that they never had much of a chance, and soon the Channel Islands would be completely transformed. The Nazis used a system called the Riegelbau, or standard build, to mass-produce bunkers that could withstand enemy attacks. Built from over 200 standardized armor parts, they could be assembled much faster than other constructs after being built in German factories, almost like the world's largest Lego set, if they could withstand aerial assaults. There were three primary types of designs, temporary ones in the field made out of timber and soil with a concrete ceiling, reinforced models with a meter strong concrete ceiling, and permanent facilities with two meter thick concrete ceilings and walls. Hitler approved the plan, and one of the biggest construction projects in World War II history began. Soon, the Channel Islands were met with a throng of workers coming in to begin construction. Some were civilian workers and military members in non-combat positions, but many were taken from the Nazi labor camps around Europe and from military detainees, along with the native Channel Island populations. Supplies were brought in, particularly cement, steel, and timber, and work camps were built to keep the workforce in a centralized location and to keep them from escaping by the end of 1942, the Channel Islands had become a massive military fortress. Sites would be excavated using manual labor, often using explosives to speed things up. As soon as this was done, the construction experts would come in and direct the labor, carefully assembling sites according to the exact specifications of the plans. There were several types of facilities, each designed for a specific purpose, and to make it near impossible for any Allied forces to dislodge the Nazi occupation. The first line of defense, artillery. For those visiting the Channel Islands today, one of the most impressive landmarks is the Battery Miris, a massive artillery position with massive range-finding towers and four barrels. Its powerful guns could shoot a stunning 32 miles with lightweight shells or almost 20 miles with heavy anti-armor shells, making them able to gun down enemy forces. L- I like it. it's mine. The prices blow my mind.
2: I feel so rich. I feel like a billionaire.
6: I'm shopping like a billionaire. I'm shopping
1: like a billionaire. Let's go. I'm shopping like a billionaire. I get it straight. I come to I'm shopping like a billionaire. Download the Temu app and shop like a billionaire.
0: This long before they could set foot on yeah. the island.
4: The powerhouse artillery position would be joined by 10 coastal artillery batteries on Guernsey alone, surrounded by bunkers that would contain spare ammunition. But they were prepared for dangers coming from all directions, including above. The islands were also filled with longer range guns designed for taking out aircraft, with some able to shoot as far as 7,500 meters. Six island anti-aircraft batteries were set up, equipped with radar and searchlights. The Nazis wanted a clear line of sight and fire, so they looked for wide open locations, including a converted golf course. The radars and command bunkers for the anti-aircraft barriers were fortified, with around 175 total positions. And just in case anyone got through, the island had been littered with explosive rigged obstacles to get planes when they landed. But if any enemy forces got through, the Nazis were prepared. If the Allies got to the beach, they would be met by countless casemates designed for close range assaults. While the small bunkers would be hard to penetrate, any soldiers approaching them would be met with multiple soldiers worth of heavy fire. The machine guns within were equipped with searchlights for nighttime fire, but defenses were just as strong as the offensive posts. Barbed wire and minefields made it dangerous to cross the islands, trenches made it hazardous and harder to navigate. These would usually lead to heavy fire zones, funneling the invading soldiers right into the line of fire. The 12 strong point areas around Guernsey protected most of the critical points, with resistance nests around the island providing simpler defenses. But the strongest island defenses might have been hidden from sight. To the untrained eye, much of Guernsey would seem to be unspoiled green. But this was often camouflage, with paint and straw being used to resemble grass and natural stones being built into concrete and under many of these camouflaged positions would be a massive network of tunnels that spanned much of the islands. Built over two years, 14 full tunnels were completed while others were started but never finished. They would allow Nazi personnel and their workers to navigate from one position to another away from enemy eyes. And for the most important facilities on the island, secrecy was key. Leadership and technical support were housed in underground bunkers, as well as the infrastructure that was needed to keep the massive Nazi war machine on the island running. Radar units were the top target for Allied bombers, and were usually disguised with the crew working in underground bunkers. While the transformation of the Channel Islands was very visible, much of its most powerful tools were hidden. The Channel Islands mega fortress designed by Adolf Hitler seemed indestructible, but there was one thing they hadn't counted on. As the years went on, resistance to the occupation grew and Nazi oppression increased. Resisters were sent abroad to Nazi prisons, with some dying. The British government made several attempts to liberate the islands, but raids had to be called off due to heavy fire, weather conditions, or resources being needed elsewhere. In 1944, the Allied forces launched the D-Day landings and liberated Normandy but decided to pass by the Channel Islands because it would take far more resources than they had to take on the German fortifications. But it had other consequences. Almost all the Channel Islands food supplies went through Nazi-occupied France and that pipeline had just been cut off. The Channel Islands were starving. Negotiations began for the Channel Islands' fate with the Germans initially making an offer to the British to release all civilians besides military-age men. Winston Churchill was unimpressed, telling them, let them starve, they can rot at their leisure. The tide to the war was turning, and the Allies only wanted one thing, unconditional surrender. The Germans refused to discuss it and it would be several long months in December of 1944 until a Red Cross ship was finally able to bring food and medical supplies. But the end was only months away. May 8, 1945 saw the Germans surrender and only days later Allied forces arrived across the Channel Islands and the German soldiers laid down their weapons and slowly but surely the population that fled the occupied islands began to return and were shocked at how their little islands had been transformed. The Nazi forces were gone, but the islands were still dotted with their massive military infrastructure. And in the years to come, it would define the islands in some unique ways. What was the ultimate purpose of Hitler's island megafortress? The Germans put an enormous amount of effort into defending a small group of islands, but it amounted to very little. They were able to hold the islands, but never mounted any successful attacks on Britain from there. They were never conquered, but nearly starved to death as soon as they were cut off. Was it just another elaborate project of the madman who met his end inside a German bunker? Or was it intended as something else? Some suspect it may have been a place Hitler planned to hide if he got out of Germany in time. A group of Channel Island residents were determined to answer these questions. It was 1961 when the Channel Islands Occupation Society was formed. A group of volunteers dedicated to investigating and managing the history of the German occupation They took over management of many of the German sites from the British military and published an annual newsletter sharing stories from the era. Based in both Jersey and Guernsey, they are most people's entry point to this little-known part of World War II history. But they're not the only way to learn about it. Today, one of the Channel Islands biggest industries is tourism. The islands are open to visitors and most of the most famous Nazi bunkers have been cleaned out of anything dangerous and are open to tourists. Historian Dan Snow put out a documentary as he traveled the length of Guernsey, visiting Hitler's island fortress, and sharing tales of the Second World War. A German occupation museum stands in Lehuart, offering a look into artifacts and communications from the occupation era. His whole trip consisted of a six-day itinerary, much of which can be covered by daring visitors. But not all the secrets of the Nazi occupation have yet been uncovered. It was early 2020 when Snow's documentary crew explored a bunker that had only recently been uncovered and renovated. It was even filled with the original bunks for the soldiers stationed there, and the walls were painted with murals from the men who lived underground. There were places reserved for pictures of high ranking German officials, including Hitler himself. Even today, over 70 years since the war, Hitler's island mega fortress continues to give up its secrets. While the occupation lasted only five years, the fortress was built to last, and historians of the war.
1: I do get nervous about seeing a healthcare provider about managing my weight.
0: And that's why we should do it uh, in groups, like communities. Lose weight in communities. You know, like... Have a park in every every community.
4: The men of his time and ...be and historians of the war will likely be making new discoveries for decades to come. History remembers Hitler for many things. A failed artist, his love for German shepherds, being a Nazi dickhead. Yeah, it's mostly the Nazi dickhead thing. But one thing you might be surprised to learn about Hitler is that he was actually one of the wealthiest men of his time. And no, not just because of all that stolen Nazi gold and loot gathered from all across Europe. But because of his own shrewd business skills. Young Hitler lived a bohemian lifestyle before it was cool, making him the ultimate mass murdering hipster. He rented a small apartment in Vienna with a friend and struggled to get by by selling small paintings and postcards to tourists. After being rejected from art school twice, Hitler was soon out on the street, all of his funds having run out. After World War 1 Hitler had become involved in German politics and famously took part in the failed Beer Hall Putsch of 1923. As a result he was sentenced to prison for 5 years and to help pay off his legal fees he dictated what would become Mein Kampf to two of his cellmates. Hitler imagined that the book would be popular amongst the National Socialist party and had no big dreams of making it as a writer. All he needed was a few thousand people to buy the book so that he could pay off his legal fees and in 1925, the first year of its publication, Mein Kampf sold 9000 copies. While this certainly helped pay for his legal fees, Hitler would see no royalties from these meager sales. However, as Hitler began to rise along the ranks of the National Socialist party, so did his exposure as an author. More and more party members and even some curious members of the public want to know what this mustachioed young man was all about and copies of Mein Kampf slowly began to increase in sales. By 1930 Mein Kampf had managed to sell 55,000 copies in a single year and by this time Hitler was receiving decent if not impressive royalty checks from his publisher. Once Hitler became chancellor of Germany though book sales of Mein Kampf exploded and in 1933 the year he took power sales skyrocketed to over 850,000. Needless to say Hitler was now pulling in rather large royalty checks thanks to his massive personality cult and the fact that he ruled Germany unchecked, Hitler decided that the best way to boost sales of his book even further was to have the government itself buy copies. Therefore the Nazi government immediately bought 6 million copies of his book. And copies were being provided to soldiers and government workers alike. Even married couples received a free copy on their wedding day as a very weird congratulatory present from the Nazi government. But as Hitler became more popular or infamous depending on your take, the world at large grew curious about the Nazi author. Internationally Hitler earned royalties on the sale of his book up until 1939 when he was declared an enemy of the allies and had all international royalties cut off. Granted, he was never earning nearly as much internationally as domestically, but he was still pulling in $560,000 in royalties from sales in Britain and about $50,000 in royalties from sales in the US. During the war, his book would continue to sell in the US. Though the US government seized control of publishing royalties by invoking the Trading with the Enemy Act and ended up giving $260,000 in royalties to war refugee charities. While Hitler was trying to kill people, ironically his book was helping those same people. At his height, Hitler was earning about $13.5 million a year from book sales in today's dollars, which would be far more impressive if he wasn't basically forcing the Nazi government to simply buy his book. All those sales though had accumulated to a $10 million tax bill, which Hitler simply ordered one of his ministers to forgive. We gotta admit, sometimes it pays to be on top, literally. In total Hitler would earn a whopping 170 million dollars in today's dollars just by selling copies of Mein Kampf. All this money was used to buy several very expensive properties around Germany. Though Hitler also used a great deal of his own personal fortune to fund the Nazi party. He even made one of his homes the Berghof, into the main headquarters of the Nazi party. Sadly when the British tried to bomb it back to the stone age their bombs largely missed and only managed to slightly damage it. Hitler however used his political power to enrich himself with one more other cunning ploy. He licensed his image to the German government and then ordered that it be used basically everywhere. From posters to stamps to the covers of propaganda magazines and books, Hitler's face was everywhere all across the German nation. And every time his face was printed on anything, Hitler got a cut thanks to licensing fees. Given that Hitler was the one ordering the creation of all this propaganda material, we once more have to admit that this is a pretty pro super villain move. Taking over a country and ruling it like a dictator is one thing, but selling your image to your own government and then forcing it to print it everywhere is on a whole other level of villainy. Then of course there is all the untold stolen wealth of Europe that the nazis quote liberated as they invaded nations. By the end of the war the nazis had stolen a whopping 21 billion dollars in gold and it was this stolen gold that helped entirely fund the german war machine for 5 whole years. As supreme ruler of germany whatever the state owned was basically hitlers personal wealth as well. Though the allies made sure that he spent every stolen cent on the war effort lest his forces be defeated sooner than they eventually were. Still, with the largest gold reserves in the world for a short while, Hitler was likely one of history's richest rulers if only briefly. Today Mein Kampf continues to sell copies. Physical copies of the book are understandably very rare as most people don't want to be caught in public reading Mein Kampf. Yet thanks to digital readers like Kindle, digital sales of Mein Kampf have exploded around the world. Part of this is due to sheer curiosity and in some parts of the world who have learned very little about Hitler and his role in World War II, Mein Kampf and anything Hitler related is actually seen as trendy, hip, and cool. This is especially true in Southeast Asia, with Thailand in love with anything Hitler related. Again, this is mostly due to the fact that Thai citizens learn very little about Hitler's role in World War II, and for them, he's apparently nothing more than a snazzy dresser with a funny mustache. A rise in anti Semitism and nationalism, however, has also seen sales of Mein Kampf increase in the last few years, and that's rather unfortunate for the rest of us non Nazi dickheads. Ironically, though, because no publisher wants to be associated with Hitler and his book, or seen as enriching themselves from Nazi trash, the vast majority of all money made from the sales of the book are. Fun- Straight into various charities. So while white supremacists are buying up Mein Kampf and hating on Jews and other minorities, they're actually helping fund a ton of charities that help those groups of people and others out. Thanks, idiots. After Hitler's death, what remained of his wealth and ongoing royalties from Mein Kampf went to one of Hitler's surviving cousins, who flatly refused them and did not wish to be associated with one of history's greatest villains. Instead those funds were channeled to various charities and post-war reconstruction efforts. The same goes for sales of his early artwork with no dealers wanting to be associated with Hitler and sales largely taking place between private sellers and collectors. In the end, Hitler may have been one of the most evil men to ever live, but ironically he would end up defeating himself as his wealth continues to this day to be used for causes that would likely make him turn over in his grave. Stefan Novak's heart beats rapidly in his chest as he approaches the Nazi checkpoint. Heavily armored SS soldiers check each person's papers before they are allowed to enter the heart of the Nazi empire. Stefan watches in horror as a man is pulled from the line screaming, he's thrown to the ground. The man pleads with the Nazis to spare his life, that the Star of David burned into his arm was just a mistake, he really isn't Jewish. But the Nazis don't listen. The commander pulls his pistol out of its holster and shoots the man in the chest. Stefan shows no emotion as he watches the innocent man die. He knows that if he's going to successfully infiltrate the lands of the Third Reich, he needs to maintain his cover. Stefan has been working tirelessly to assume his new identity. One that will allow him to move freely across the European continent, which is now completely controlled by Adolf Hitler. Before the Nazis won the war in Europe, Stefan was a resistance fighter in the Polish army. But now there is no war to fight. The Nazis have full control of Europe and Stefan only has one thing on his mind. To find his wife and daughter before they are worked to death in a concentration camp, or executed for being related to an enemy of the Nazi state. As the war came to an end Stefan received word from Polish underground forces that his wife and daughter had been taken by the Nazis and put on a train to work in one of the slave camps somewhere in the empire. He immediately called in all of his favors to secure fake documents and uncover as much of his information on his family's whereabouts as possible. The good news is he knows where to start his search. The bad news is that the start point is in Berlin, the heart of the Nazi empire. Stefan reaches the front of the line. The Nazi soldier asks for his papers. He keeps his eyes on the ground as a sign of fear, even though he would be more than capable of snapping the Nazi's neck and taking out a few of his comrades in the process. But he must remain undercover if he has any hope of locating his wife and daughter. The soldier is quiet for a moment as he looks over the papers. What business do you have in the capital? The Nazi asks. I wish to give my life to the Third Reich. I was a stonemason before the war. And I know the Fuhrer is in need of hard-working men to complete his vision for Germania, Stefan replies. The Nazi grunts. Polish scum, he says. Very well, continue on. The Nazi slams Stefan's papers into his chest, slightly pushing him backward, and points to where he should go. It takes everything Stefan has not to punch the Nazi in the face, but he knows what the consequences of such an action would be. He continues through the checkpoint and boards a bus for Berlin. The bus drives through the Nazi countryside, it looks untouched by the war. The Nazis work quickly and it's helped that they now have a gigantic pool of slave labor to pull from in order to rebuild their roads and buildings. Anyone who does not conform to Hitler's vision of the Aryan race is treated as a second-class citizen. Anyone belonging to ethnic minority groups such as the Jews are enslaved and either worked to death or killed as part of the Nazis' mass genocide program. The bus enters what was once Berlin. The city has been transformed into Hitler's megacity called Germania. Everywhere Stefan looks, he sees statues dedicated to Nazi leaders and generals. Grand buildings made of marble quarried by slaves rise from the ground like mountains. The city seems to have popped up overnight, thanks to the millions of forced laborers Hitler and his architects had at their disposal. The sight of swastikas and Nazi symbols on every building and street corner makes Stefan sick. The bus comes to a stop in the heart of the city. Stefan gets off. He has instructions from one of the informants in the Polish underground network to pick up more information on the whereabouts of his family in a newly constructed housing complex. He heads there immediately and finds a small eagle representing the Polish coat of arms etched into one of the stones of the building. Stefan pushes the stone. It moves slightly to reveal a hidden compartment. In it is a set of papers that indicate his wife and daughter have been sent to the east. Early in the war, the Nazis reached an agreement with the Soviet Union saying that they would stay out of the war in exchange for Hitler not invading their country. Hitler had no intention of upholding his end of the bargain, but he needed time to focus his efforts on defeating the Allied forces in France. Once this mission was complete, he launched Operation Sea Lion across the English Channel into Britain. The Allied forces in Britain were still recovering from the Dunkirk invasion and were no match for the Nazi blitzkrieg. Britain fell soon after. Now it's ruled by Hermann Göring, one of Hitler's top generals and good friends. Göring is a monster, Who has turned Britain into his own private island. He has luxury goods imported from around the empire and throws lavish parties for his Nazi comrades in what was once Buckingham Palace. Resources from Britain are sent back to Germany as tribute to Hitler, but for all intents and purposes, Goring is the new King of England. He must do exactly what the Fuhrer orders, but in return he has free reign of the British Isles and is quickly stripping them of their resources while oppressing their people. As soon as Hitler controlled all of Western Europe and defeated British military forces, he turned his attention toward the Soviet Union. The Nazis coordinated an attack with Japan, who struck from the west, while their forces pushed across Eastern Europe and into Russia from the opposite direction. All Hitler really wanted was the territory up to the Ural Mountains. Eventually he would take over the world, but this would complete the first stage of his plan and put all of Europe under his control. Stefan puts the stone back in its place and heads to the train station, where he purchases a ticket for the Nazi territories and what was once the Soviet Union. When Hitler defeated the Allies in Europe, he annexed Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland. Most of the populations in these regions conformed to his definition of what the human race should look like. There were resistance fighters who tried to protect the freedom of all peoples in these nations, but they were quickly disposed of by the SS. Now the Dutch and Scandinavian governments are puppets for Hitler to do with as he pleases. However, the people in the former Soviet Union aren't so lucky. Stefan looks out the window of the train car, as the lands east of Germany seem more like hell than earth. The landscape has been ravaged for its resources. Hitler had no intentions of incorporating the people of the Soviet Union into his empire. All he wants to do is use them as slave labor and harvest the oil, metal, and timber from their land. Stefan feels sick to his stomach as he passes ghost town after ghost town. Buildings are in ruin from the war. People are living in houses, missing entire walls. After days of traveling, the train jerks to a stop and Stefan gets off. The air is cold, but the smell of smoke fills his nose. He looks down the road and sees the fencing of a work camp where thousands of people are being held. He follows the procession of new laborers that were on board the train with him, but at the last minute ducks into a thick patch of bushes that sits on the edge of the tree line. He waits for the Nazi guards who are escorting the group to enter the camp before he starts making his way toward the fencing. Stefan peers into the camp. SS and newly conscripted Russian soldiers who are sympathetic to the Nazi cause shout out orders at the workers. Many are malnourished or are nothing but skin and bone. Anyone who is seen by the Nazis as having an inferior bloodline or belonging to an ethnic minority is used for slave labor. Unfortunately, this constitutes anyone from Russia. Stefan makes eye contact with one of the men walking toward the barracks. The man's face is covered in dirt. He can barely stand up straight from exhaustion. Stefan recognizes this man. He was a soldier in the resistance. They had conducted a few missions together. The former ally looks around to see if anyone's watching and then makes his way to the fence. Stefan, what are you doing here? He whispers. I'm looking for Tony and my daughter. An informant told me they've been taken to this camp. The man's expression becomes even more somber. He shakes his head back and forth. I'm so very sorry Stefan, he says. Your wife and daughter were loaded into a transport a week ago. The Nazis are diverting people to the coast of France as they plan for the attack on the United States. Stefan's heart breaks, he's silent for a moment. How were they? Had they been hurt by these Nazi bastards? No, the man on the other side of the fence responds. They were weak, like all of us, but they were in relatively good health when they left. I'm sorry Stefan, I wish I had better. Suddenly, a gunshot rings out. The former resistance fighter's eyes open wide. Stefan reaches out through the fence to steady him. Blood trickles from the man's mouth as he falls to the ground. Stefan looks up. Several Nazi guards are running toward him with their guns raised. Stefan turns and sprints to the forest. He weaves through the trees trying to put as much distance.
5: Make the holidays sweeter with a gift that's been made with the finest ingredients for over 100 years. Russell Stover Chocolates. Make happy.
4: Distance between him and the Nazi camp is possible. He hears the sounds of dogs barking and men shouting from behind him. Stefan pushes his body as far as it'll go. He knows that if he's captured his hopes of seeing his wife and There's child- there.
0: Yeah, you are. Hi there. Thanks for 303k, even though it's just law enforcement.
4: ...held again, would be crushed. Stefan spots a tree with thick branches and abundant foliage. He darts toward it and leaps off the ground, grabbing onto one of the branches. He begins to climb higher and higher into the tree. If he can hide there until the Nazis pass, he may be able to get out of this alive. Moments later, several dogs appear. They bark and growl as they run past the tree Stefan is hiding in. He lets out a sigh of relief, but it's premature. The dogs realize they've lost his scent and backtrack toward the tree he's hiding in. Mm -hmm. They begin sniffing all around the tree. The Nazi soldiers catch up and begin looking for Stefan. He closes his eyes and prays he's not discovered. Yelling can be heard from another part of the forest. The Nazis turn their heads to listen. They give new commands to the dogs, who stop sniffing around the tree and sprint toward the sound of the shouting. The Nazi soldiers follow. Stefan stays in the tree for what feels like hours. When he finally climbs down, the sun is set, and the frigid night air is quiet. He makes his way back toward the train tracks, where he waits for a transport to pass by. The sound of a locomotive can be heard off in the distance. Then, a behemoth of a train comes into view. Stefan runs out of the forest as fast as he can. He times his jump perfectly and grabs onto one of the handles of the train. It takes every ounce of strength, but Stefan manages to slide the car door open and falls into the train car. It's carrying supplies Europe, toward number one, where they'll be used to launch an attack across the Atlantic. The clicking and clacking of the train on the tracks is like a lullaby. Stefan doesn't know exactly where this train is headed, but he knows it's at least bringing him closer to finding his wife and child. Stefan blacks out from exhaustion. When he awakes, the train is still crossing the former Soviet Union. By the angle of the sun, it seems as if it's traveling due west, but slightly to the south. This isn't ideal, but he is relatively safe on board the train. And he knows it'll eventually make its way to the west coast to deliver the supplies. Several more days go by. Stefan survives off of stores of grain that have been packed aboard the train. Whenever it rains, he catches the precious liquid in a Nazi helmet he found in one of the crates. As the sun rises a week after he snuck aboard the train, an ominous sight comes into view. In the distance, Stefan can see gigantic snow-covered peaks jutting up from the landscape. He knows these must be the Alps. He's now in a newly formed Roman Empire. As the train travels through the countryside, Stefan sees a mix of Nazi and Italian soldiers at different checkpoints. When Hitler conquered Northern Europe and the Western Soviet Union, he allowed Mussolini to control the lands that were once under the control of the Roman Empire. However, it's clear that Mussolini is not really in control. In fact, he isn't even allowed to make his own decisions. He almost cost the Nazis the war in Southern Europe, and now Hitler uses him as a figurehead while he controls the nation. There's been recent contention between the Italian puppet government and Hitler as the Italians try to hold on to their Roman Catholic religion. Hitler, on the other hand, wants to dismantle Christianity and organized religion completely. His tension has caused the Nazis to deploy forces around the new Roman Empire to make the transition to a state ideology go more smoothly. Hitler is adamant that the only allegiance and belief system anyone in his empire should have is to him and the Nazi party. The train Stefan is hiding on reaches the coast of what was once southern France. He looks across the Mediterranean, On the other side of these waters is Northern Africa, which is also under the control of the Nazis. Once the Allied forces in Europe were defeated, the Nazi army faced little to no resistance while invading other parts of the world. Hitler had no interest in building up infrastructure in North Africa, but he's incredibly interested in its resources, especially oil. Stefan closes his eyes and thinks about his wife and daughter. His train has now begun to travel northwest. Soon it'll reach the western coast of Hitler's empire. After the Nazis defeated Britain and the Soviet Union, Hitler turned his attention towards Spain. He appreciated what Francisco Franco was doing in the country, but there could only be one dictator in Europe, and it was going to be him. Hitler ordered his Luftwaffe to carry out bombing runs on key targets in Spain and Portugal, followed by a series of infantry invasions. Both countries quickly fell, and Franco's pleas to remain the leader of Spain fell on deaf ears. As a sign of respect for his fellow dictator, Hitler did not execute Franco, but exiled him to South America instead. The Nazis immediately began constructing railways through the country all the way to the Strait of Gibraltar, where a massive fortress was created to guard the entrance to the Mediterranean. New docks were also created to allow for easy transportation of goods and natural resources from Africa onto mainland Europe. Stefan feels the train begin to slow and prepares to jump off before it reaches the station. This is no ordinary Nazi outpost. The final destination of this train is Brest, in what used to be France. It's from this region that Hitler his aerial assault of the eastern United States. The Brittany Peninsula has been converted into one big airfield full of America bombers and other long-range aircraft. Stefan tucks and rolls off the train right before it crosses into a heavily guarded train yard where the supplies aboard will be offloaded. The French countryside has been completely demolished, and in its place are factories and airfields as far as anyone can see. Trains and transports run constantly from Germany to the western coast of Europe as the only real threat to Hitler's domination of the world is the U.S. Many French people have been enlisted to aid in the war effort. Their armies fell quickly after the initial invasion of the country by the Nazi Panzer and Infantry Divisions. Stefan breaks into a nearby house to steal clothing and food before setting out to locate his wife and daughter in the various work camps in the area. He's surprised to find a Nazi SS uniform in one of the drawers, and even though the outfit goes against everything he stands for, he puts it on. as brown cloth with the swastika stitched on the arm ...will allow him to move freely to search for his family. A belt with a holster hangs on the back of one of the doors. In the holster is a Luger with a full clip. Stefan knows if he has to use the pistol, it'll likely be the last thing he ever does. But having a weapon might come in handy if he runs into serious trouble. The new reality of Hitler's Europe is that no matter where anyone goes, there are always concentration camps set up to provide... Hmm. a free source of labor the main group of people in the camps are eastern europeans and prisoners of war hitler's empire will always need workers so the mass extermination of people has slowed slightly hitler knows that with an almost unlimited amount of free manpower and resources pouring in from all of his newly acquired territories he can make any of his sick dreams a reality stefan makes his way from camp to camp careful to interact with as few nazis as possible each time he enters a new area he tries to remain calm and conduct a thorough search for his family After days of searching, Stefan feels defeated. He knows he can't give up, but the pain and suffering he's witnessed is enough to drive him mad. The individuals in each work camp are treated more like animals than people. They're starving and overworked. He'll not give up, but with every camp he enters, he loses a little bit of himself. Stefan is about to call it a day when he sees a young girl with her back to him. She's holding on the fence, looking out across a field. Stefan slowly approaches her. Anna? He whispers. The girl turns around, tears streaming down her face. It is his daughter. Stefan resists the urge to wrap his arms around her so he doesn't look suspicious. Papa, the girl asks. Stefan's eyes begin to water. It's me. I'm going to get you out of here, but we have to pretend we don't know each other. His daughter stares at him. She can't believe her father is really there. She squints as she looks at his Nazi uniform. Stefan understands. It's only a disguise, my love, so that I can find you and your mother. He pauses for a moment to look around. Anna, where is your mother? His daughter begins to sob. They took her, she manages to blurt out. Mama refused to do any more work for the Nazis. She spat in one of their faces and was taken away. I think they're going to kill her. Stefan's eyes open wide. Where did they take her, he asked. His daughter points to the other side of the fence, where she's been staring previously. Stefan could just barely make out a group of figures standing in a straight line. Clustered in front of them are several Nazis. They hold their weapons by their side, but it is clear what's about to happen. Come with me, Stefan tells his daughter. They walk quickly toward a jeep parked outside one of the mess halls. Stefan holds his breath as he looks at the steering wheel. The keys are in the ignition. Get in the back and cover yourself with a blanket on the seat, he says to Anna. She does as she's told. Once his daughter is safely hidden, Stefan slides into the driver's seat of the Jeep and turns the key. The engine roars to life. From inside the mess hall, Stefan can hear plates clatter and voices yelling. The sound of the engine alerts the Nazis that something is wrong. He must get to his wife before she's executed or he and his daughter are captured. Stefan floors the Jeep and speeds toward the gate. The crack of gunshots ring out behind him as the Nazis flood out of the mess hall and open fire. The guards at the gate raise their machine guns and shoot at the incoming vehicle. Stefan unholsters the Luger he stole and returns fire. He holds his breath to steady his aim and focuses. His resistance training immediately kicks in. He buries around in the chest of one of the guards and sends the second diving for cover. Stefan pushes the accelerator down so hard he feels as if his foot might go through the floor of the Jeep. The vehicle slams through the gate and veers down the dirt road. Stefan turns the wheel hard and steers toward the row of prisoners who are about to be executed in the field. The Nazi guards watch the incoming jeep, unsure of what's going on. Then they see their comrades in pursuit from the work camp. Before they can raise their guns the jeep, it's upon him. Stefan hits several of the Nazi soldiers as he skids to his stop, sending them in flying through the air. There are now only two soldiers remaining. They unleash a barrage of bullets into the side of the jeep. Stefan rolls out onto the ground. He pops up from behind the door and returns fire. He hits one of the Nazis in the stomach. The man falls to the ground. Stefan turns the pistol on the second Nazi and pulls the trigger, but instead of firing, there's only a click. The gun is jammed. Stefan ducks back behind the jeep just as the Nazis open fire again. The bullets ricochet off the metal frame of the vehicle. Stefan crawls to the side of the jeep. He waits for the Nazi to run out of bullets. When the firing ceases, Stefan hears the soldier begin to reload. He sprints out from behind the vehicle and runs straight to the enemy. He tackles the man to the ground, punching him as hard as he can in the face. His fist connects with the Nazi's nose, shattering it and knocking the soldier out. Stefan pants as he regains control of his body and slows his heartbeat. Then he hears a familiar voice. Stefan, is that you? He looks up to see his wife. She has a shocked look on her face, but when their eyes meet, she smiles and places a hand gently on his cheek. I knew you'd come, she says. Stefan stands and embraces her for a moment. The shouts of the Nazi soldiers running toward them breaks the joyful moment and brings them back to reality. Come on, Stefan says, signaling to the jeep. Stefan, his wife, and the other prisoners who were to be executed pile into the vehicle. Anna hugs her mother. The jeep drives away, leaving the Nazis in the dust. Stefan and the escapees have a long way to go to get out of Nazi-controlled Europe, but he's now reunited with his family, and he'll do anything to make sure they get to safety. It's September 18, 1931. Adolf Hitler has not quite turned into the beast he'll become known as, but the man sure does have a temper. He's at his Munich apartment, screaming and shouting, spit flying out of his mouth. The object of his fury is his half-niece, Gaily Ralbo. Some people say this girl would be the only love of his life, but on this day, the two are engaged in a tempestuous clash. Is it because he is the father she never really had, or he just loves her dearly, so he doesn't want her to leave? Or is she pregnant with his child, an embarrassment to Adolf and the Nazi party? Is he just out of his mind on a cocktail of hard drugs, or is she the one who is deranged? This is still a mystery, but what isn't a mystery is that soon after this argument occurred, Gailey was found with a bullet in her dead body, with her uncle Adolf smoking gun at her side. That's right, and many people thought that Hitler had fired that gun. The story became one of the biggest scandals in Germany during the period. There's just so much people don't know about Mr. Adolf Hitler. That's why today we're going to take a look at his life and try to figure out why he was the way he was. This show is not so much about Hitler as we know him, the man who waged war on the world, but the man himself. That's why we'll call him Adolf today. We'll come back to the question of if he murdered his niece a bit later, but first let's have a look at that little bundle of joy that was Adolf as a kid. He was born on April 20th, 1889, which made him a Taurus. Okay, so we know most of you don't believe...
0: After
5: not pooping for three days, my, mom, oh was my, oh, three no, days, my mom was rushed
4: to the hospital to have a Jesus
2: Christ. After not pooping for three days, my mom was rushed to the hospital to have a log
4: up. of poop surgically shut removed up. from her colon. Gross. I don't believe in that kind of thing, but there's no doubt that Adolf was the proverbial. He smashed up half of Europe. He was born in what is present day Austria to his father Aloy and his mother Clara. You'll hear many unusual things today, including that Clara was Aloy's third wife, and that also his second cousin. She became part of his household at the age of 16, but first as a maid. At that time, Aloy was still married to his second wife. Clara left the household, but came back when Aloy's second wife died. She helped Aloy bring up the children and then got pregnant with him.
0: All right, I'm confused.
4: What happened? Died. That's right, and many people thought that Hitler had fired that gun. The story became one of the biggest scandals in Germany during the period. There's just so much people don't know about Mr. Adolf Hitler. That's why today we're going to take a look at his life and try to figure out why he was the way he was. This show is not so much about Hitler as we know him, the man who waged war on the world, but the man himself. That's why we'll call him Adolf today. We'll come back to the question of if he murdered his niece a bit later. But first, let's have a look at that little bundle of joy that was Adolf as a kid. He was born on April 20th, 1889, which made him a Taurus. Okay, so we know most of you don't believe in that oh, kind of thing, cousin. but there's no doubt that Adolf was the proverbial bull in a china shop. He smashed up half of Europe. He was born in what is present-day Austria to his father Aloy and his mother Clara. You'll hear many unusual things today, including that Clara was Aloy's third wife and that also his second cousin. She became part of his household at the age of 16, or first as a maid. At that time, Aloy was still married to his second wife. Clara left the household but came back when Aloy's second wife died. She helped Aloy bring up the children and then got pregnant with him. As this was sketchy business back then, they had to go to the church and ask for permission to marry. What's also strange is that she still called him uncle when she was intimate with him. As you'll see later in the show in relation to Adolf, we can invoke the expression, the apple didn't fall far from the tree." The two were married in January 1885. Adolf was their fourth child. Clara absolutely loved him. He was a mama's boy, no doubt, which shaped the man he would become. There's also been some speculation that Adolf was beaten by his father and shielded by his mother. But Clara absolutely loved him. He was a mama's boy, no doubt, which shaped the man he would become. There's also been some speculation that Adolf was beaten by his father and shielded by his mother. Fourth child, Clara absolutely loved him. He was a mama's boy, no doubt, which shaped the man he would become. There's also been some speculation that Adolf was beaten by his father and shielded by his mother. But historians aren't too sure of just how physical Aloy got with Adolf. Still, it's said that Aloy was domineering, aggressive, and sometimes cruel. The family at least wasn't too badly off since Aloy earned decent money as a customs official. One of the reasons that Clara liked Adolf so much was the fact that she already had lost two of her kids, Gustav and Ida, to diphtheria. Out of six children she had with Aloy, only two survived childhood, Adolf and Paula. Not surprisingly, Paula changed her name after the Second World War. It is safe to say that Adolf feared his father and adored his mother. When his father died in 1903, Adolf was 13, and he didn't seem overly troubled. Now he had his mother all to himself. Yes, this is all very Freudian. Just wait until you hear about his sex life when he becomes an adult. Freud would have had a field day. Adolf was always a sickly child, so soon after his father's death, Clara pulled him out of school and told him he could concentrate on his newfound love, art. He loved sketching, playing piano, and was keen on other creative pursuits. This is why she was supportive when he told her he wanted to go to Vienna and try to become a paid artist. Off he went, and oh boy, did he struggle to make it. At times, he barely had enough money to feed himself. Vienna was a nightmare. In 1906, Clara discovered a lump in her breast, and so she went to the family doctor. It wasn't good news. She had breast cancer. But it seemed the doctor didn't tell her at first. It was Adolf that eventually told her what was wrong. This devastated him. Clara underwent a mastectomy soon after, but the cancer metastasized. The Hitlers were informed that Clara was not long for this world. Adolf returned from Vienna and became her caretaker. He watched her suffer in pain as she was treated with an experimental type of chemotherapy. This was almost impossible for him to watch. Her throat became seriously swollen. Oh, wow, they making it difficult for her back to then? eat or speak. This period yeah. in Adolf's life would seep into the very marrow of his bones. Clever died on December 21st, 1907. Adolf was more than sad. He was stricken with grief to the point of delirium. The family doctor said some years later, In all my career, I've never seen anyone so prostrate with grief as Adolf Hitler. This doctor was actually Jewish. So when Adolf was killing Jewish people in the millions... He allowed the doctor to emigrate from Austria to the USA. This was his way of saying thanks for trying. We should say it's not certain if it was Adolf that helped the doctor get away, but that is the theory. During the war, when the doctor was in the US, he was contacted by the Office of Strategic Services, an intelligence agency that was the precursor to the CIA. They wanted to know what Adolf Hitler was like as a child. What made the monster? The doctor Mm. said... While Hitler was not a mother's boy in the usual sense, I never witnessed a closer attachment. Their love had been mutual. Clara Hitler adored her son. She allowed him his own way whenever possible. For example, she admired his watercolor paintings and drawings and supported his artistic ambitions in opposition to his father at what cost to herself, one may guess. Even though Adolf had been loved by his mother, you can't argue with the fact that he had... jeez.
0: Oh, Whatever
4: the holidays mean to you, Get the post it. in a new hut. He had a pretty grim childhood. He grew up with a tyrannical father in a family that had suffered the loss of four children. And just when Adolf was trying to enjoy his adulthood, he had no parents at all. As he grew older, he always carried a picture of his mother around in his pocket. In his house, he had pictures of her on the wall. When he became the leader of the Nazi party and the Führer of Germany, he designated her birthday of August 12th as a day of honor for the German mother. We can look to his sister Paula wow. to know more about Adolf. She wrote a diary when she was a child, and it's quite interesting. In it, she talked about how her brother bullied her throughout her youth. In one entry, she wrote, once again, I felt my brother's hand land on my face. It seemed she never joined the Nazi party or outwardly showed any support for her older brother's ambitions. Although in 2005, a historian discovered that at one point during the war, Paula was in a relationship with a Third Reich officer named Erwin Yekelius. The psychiatrist and neurologist was involved with the terrible Nazi euthanasia programs. He ended up a prisoner of the Soviet Union and later died from bladder cancer in a Soviet labor camp in 1952. Paula wanted to marry him, but Adolf wouldn't give his permission. You'd think she would have hated Adolf for that, but it seems despite the bullying, she actually admired him. When the U.S. Army interviewed her in 1945, she outright didn't believe that her brother would order the killing of millions of Jews. We can glean more about Adolf's life from the transcript of the interview. Paula said, my father, who was of great harshness in the education of his children and who only spoiled me as the family's pet, was the absolute type of old Austrian official, conservative and loyal to his emperor to the skin. My mother, however, was a very soft and tender person. When her mother was sick with cancer, she said Adolf did nothing but care for her and her mother. She said, assisting me, my brother Adolf spoiled my mother during this time of her life with overflowing tenderness. He was indefatigable with his care for her wanting to comply with any desire she could possibly have and all to demonstrate his great love for her. She said Adolf showed little interest in most of his subjects in school and only ever seemed interested in artistic endeavors. She told the interviewer at school he was nothing less than a showboy. He often came home with bad school reports and admonitions. One thing she was adamant about was that her dear brother could not have done all the wicked things he'd been accused of. I do not believe that my brother ordered the crime committed to innumerable human beings in the concentration camps, or that he even knew of these crimes, she said. Although she did add, It may be possible, however, that the hard years during his youth in Vienna caused his anti-Jewish attitude. He was starving severely in Vienna, and he believed that his failure in painting was only due to the fact that trade in works of art was in Jewish hands. This is important. Adolf, while not a terrible artist, was a failure. His dreams dissolved before his eyes. His stomach ached while others prospered, and he was sure he was just as good as them. As an artist, he was very average, with one critic rightly saying many years later, if you walk down the Seine and see 100 artists, 80 will be better than this. Adolf may have only been harsh with his sister because in some ways he thought it was his responsibility to act that way. He always made sure she had money at least, Maybe Adolf wasn't always a monster, but monstrous ideas formed somewhere in that warped head of his. What we consider evil doesn't always look monstrous. Evil often wears a suit and tie and has impeccable manners. This is why the political theorist, Hannah Arendt, talked about the banality of evil. You can be a loving husband and father and still go to work where you usher hordes of innocent people into a gas chamber, lest we forget normal people can do terrible things. We must never forget that about Adolf Hitler. He wasn't always a fiend. We can see this in his love for animals, especially where his beloved dog was concerned. If you're wondering how Adolf could be so fond of animals and yet send humans toward torture and death, you can turn to a book that states, For leading Nazis, animal protection and crimes against humanity were not a contradiction in terms. On the contrary, they even felt that they were part of a moral elite. It's a difficult proposition to ask people to accept that a man whose ideology classed certain people as subhuman could have a nice side. He caused pain and anguish on a level that put Nero and Genghis Khan to shame. But he wasn't always monstrous, his ideology was. An American journalist once asked how people can order bombs to be dropped on totally